And we're back, baby. Another episode from the block to the ballroom. Episode 14. Absolutely, absolutely. Brother Trev, how you feeling? Feeling good, Dr. J. I'm feeling good. We got a guest here today, man. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a little bit. You know, we have uh, the good brother. We know him uh, affectionately as Brown, but his full name is Kwaku Brown. How do I say this? The first part of your last name? Bosumpra. I wasn't going to get that on the first go. Bonsu. <laughs> Brown, what's up, man? Thank you for how you feeling, man? I'm Thank good. you for being I'm here. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm just as excited to be here. You know, we've been talking about this since when? December? So, before yeah. the new year, for sure. Yeah. Definitely so before been, the new it's year. It's been a couple months of just anticipated, just a vibe just waiting right. to happen and i'm right. very excited that you guys extended their arm and allowed me to come here so i really want to appreciate you guys i mean and i'm glad you're here on the east coast so it wasn't too hard to get you into the studio you nah, know nah, it's usually you the west coast plug i usually come check you when i'm out in la you know you know pull it, up on you on the la on the la beach over there by long beach you're, you're right and and you actually made this a little bit more of a hospitable feel for me for sure especially kj welcoming me into his home and all that so it's definitely one of those things where I could just say that the feeling is mutual on both sides of the coast. That's love, bro. Crazy thing is we, we've been here rocking for an hour and a half, just talking, vibing, having good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is and cool. it, it just hit us like the light bulb went off. Like, wait, are we going to press record? Are we actually going to start <laughs> recording this? But that's, that, that just speaks to how natural the vibe is. Um, Brown, we're going to bring you right into the way that we do things. We're very uh, big on mental health. And just the state of a black man's mental health, his uh, his outlook on the days to come, and also his reflection on the days that's behind him. So we always like to start our episode with that. I'm gonna start it off, Doctor J. How you feeling, King? What's going on with you? I feel good, bro. I feel real good. I mean, this week wasn't too crazy. Was getting some of the details finalized for the position I told you about. Preparing for that. Uh, was able to solidify a place for us to stay when we go next month for and celebrate my god sister's birthday in Miami, which is great. So happy to hear that. Um, and then I had an interesting dream last night, which was funny. I had a dream about MK, which was for those who don't know what MK is, New Capital, which is the chapter Trevor and I was initiated into. Just had a dream that we were celebrating a big anniversary in Binghamton, so a bunch of us was back up there. And did not well, well, we we what we a year away from our fortieth, so maybe yeah. that's what that was. Absolutely, maybe. And I remember we had a we had a town hall to like start it off on a Friday night when okay. we got there before our party. And I remember just getting into it. Right? I was like, "Yeah, we supposed to be on time. What are y'all doing?" That and sounds typical. We was waiting. For this, <laughs> and I was waiting for you were in it. You was waiting for one of the political people within the Friday. I think the director of undergrad who's supposed to call in or something. And I'm like, yo, if he's not on time, then he get left. Right, period. right, right. Uh, so, you know, it was a good, like, I woke up laughing. <laughs> and that sounds very realistic <laughs> of, like, just different events we've had. Like, try to get, like, Jay kind of like, yo, what's going on? Like, what's going on? We got to start. We got to start. Like, that's a realistic dream. So, but no, nah, it, it was a good part. And there was also a brother in there that I need to call back, uh, PJ from uh, New York. Okay. Westbury. Yeah. He, he wanted me to speak to some of his students. And look, I have right now... No exaggeration, 86 unread text messages. Wow. Right? Um, and that's just because I, I keep getting redundant messages about certain things. And I'm kind of like, I'm not in the space to just repeat it. Requests or like? Well, a lot of it is requests. Some of it is just people want to talk about something mm. or people want to ask for something. I'm like, look, I'm, 
I got to do it when I'm in the space to do it. Right. So I'm like, and sometimes the real conversations that need to be had get mixed up in Give that, me, which yeah, I apologize. Yeah. And I think that was a manifestation of your know, co-PJ back. Right. So whether or not um, I'm doing good, man, uh, got to speak to my sister yesterday as well. I uh, also spoke with my brother, some of my cousins. Uh, also talking about they may come next week. My birthday's next week. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a good space, man. I, I, I feel good. Planning on getting some work done when we're done. The conversation we had earlier, chopping it up about old times. Uh, for those who don't know, Browns and Sigma from upstate, you know, you go from, you know, almost like sibling rivalries when everybody's in college. You grow up, everybody's Facts. a grown man. You know, so it's I'm in a great space, man. I'm smiling. I'm happy. Everything is good. What about you, brother? How you feel? That's day? what's up, bro. And, and, and you know, it's funny you said that because uh, I had a thought last week that I was, I, I, I don't know what it was, but I, I saw something MK related and it hit me. That I was like, oh, it's 2021. 2022 was next year. We were founded 82, yes. you know, the chapter. Um, and I was like, I remember uh, last time I was talking to Keith Taz, I was like, we got to get the ball, same scholarship committee, we got to get the ball rolling on the 40th. So, you know, just to make sure that it comes out and, you know, we'll see where we are pandemic wise. But you actually just reminded me that I do need to hit Taz up and start getting it because it will be 2022 before we know it. And um, I do think it's important that we make sure that the 40th comes comes out, comes out nice. But um, I'm, I'm well, bro. I'm well. Um I was uh, spent some time with mom, my sister, my niece yesterday. That was cool. I, I'll be honest. I'll be transparent. I was a little frustrated this week. Um, the, the the cold weather and the snow just gave me like a couple uh, a couple bones were, were thrown my way. So start the week off. Um, I come out. I have a flat tire. I have a flat tire. You know, luckily the good brother right here, Doctor J. Um, I have extra tires and rims. Mm at my mom's house in Queens, in the garage. So I borrowed Dr. J's car, went and picked that up, took it to a tire shop, changed it. Um, but then I needed an extra tire, so I bought a used tire um, from, from the tire shop. Looked fairly good quality, barely loaded. I was like, this is good till I decide to get a whole new set. I'll roll with this. I come outside yesterday, and the tire's flat. Mm. So that means he sold me a dud. It wasn't, mm. it, 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 you know, wasn't, it needed yeah. a patch or something. So, you know, luckily I have an air compressor, portable one, fill it up with air. I drove to him. I was like, man, what's up? No problem, Poppy. I'll give you a new tire. It, it was cool, but it was, it was just a hassle, man. It was just kind of like, but this week I was just so over the cold weather and, and the tire issue. And then on top of that, what, what, what really kind of, and I mean, Jay knows, um, my man Albert, that used to work on my pop, solid body guy, holds it down with the price. I'm going to take it to him, but I even got some body damage, which is going to happen in the winter, especially parking in places. And I, I guess I got to learn that, too, parking on a block like where I parked at versus like a more residential area like Queens where, where um, my mom's house. It's bound to happen. But there was some body damage, and I was just like, this week the car was just frustrating me with stuff yeah. that... And this is just sitting there. This is not even like I'm driving. This is just like sitting on the block. I'm getting flat tires from the cold weather, and um, and I'm getting body damage. The New you York know? struggle you going. New through. York struggle, bro. Right. But um, listen, man. Outside of that, though, very solid week. Uh, my manager reached out to me, um, wants me to speak about certain um causes that I'm involved with that's sponsored by Moody's, um, and how that's impacted me. Not really necessarily. Duh, duh, in connection to Black History Month, but just as somebody who's involved in um, the Black Employee Resource Group, Multicultural Resource Group, um, they want to 
get more employees to get involved in things like that. Different things that fit. If you're a veteran, get involved in a veteran resource group. If you're a, there's a woman's resource group, just talking about how that helps me outside of work um, and, and, and feel connected more to the company. So um, due to my work with the Black Employee Resource Group and Multicultural Employee Resource Group, I'm actually going to speak on a town hall, which is an international town hall. That's big, about man. my experience about that. Yeah, that's going to be on Tuesday. So that, that was dope. Um, if y'all want to donate some money, man, I got some old stuff I can donate some money to. Yeah, don't I mean, worry, I'm here if you want to donate. <laughs> I know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna talk about that. I mean, listen, man, Moody's got the bankroll, so it's just a matter of figuring out where the alignment is and trying to get the uh, the foundation. That's what they, the foundation is the department that dictates where the child trying to trying to make that happen. So that was some good news. Um, Friday, I went to this place in Williamsburg. Um, my girlfriend took me to this place in Williamsburg called Bathhouse. Um, that was an extension of Valentine's Day because Valentine's Day the weather wasn't the best, so we didn't do it all in one day. We went to this place called Bathhouse. Very relaxing, very relaxing, very enjoyable. It's a spa. So went in there. They have three types of pools. They have the uh, cold pool, they have the the neutral pool, and then they have the heated pool. Mm -hmm. um, and they have two different they have two different saunas. One's a dry sauna, one's a tropical sauna, um, and they also have a steam room and they did the massage. Um, massage is great. Um, massage was, was real good did a 30 minute massage um, definitely didn't really have like any like major back tension nothing but it was the massage is one of those things where like even if you feel fine once it's done you're like oh like didn't realize there was a little mm -hmm. little little pain there in the mm -hmm. shoulder blade and you know so yeah, felt great man felt great had good times in the pool um, I tried the cold pool so the cold pool temperature was 52 degrees I did try it um, Shen and I did try it and Bro, I just didn't understand how one guy, he looks like he does some kind of training or something. Because he had like some gloves on and like some shades. My man was sitting in the cold pool for at least 10 minutes. Looking unbothered, sitting there. I don't know what kind of, maybe he's doing chirotherapy or something. But I was just like, bro, you different. Because I was in there for maybe all the two seconds and got right out. Yeah, he's you know? definitely an athlete. Yeah, he's sure. doing some kind of yeah. training or something. But um, it was just relaxing, man. It was just relaxing. Um, I haven't... You know, it's funny, the last time I went to a spa, uh, it wasn't a spa, but it was it was a massage place, was last year around this time, it was like last year, February, so I haven't been at that kind of place in a while, so it was just relaxing, man, to just get the massage and, you know, spend time with, with, with the missus inside the um the heated pool and, and just relax, nice vibe, nice ambiance, uh, flowers and things of that nature, um, smooth music, kind of like what you played for us before we saw this episode. Positive Bra vibes. Yeah, Brown came in here in his selection, playing, playing some smooth, easy, <laughs> some easy vibes. Yeah, man. So it was, it was cool, man. So I will say that was a good way to balance out what uh, was a little bit of a frustrating, frustrating week. Um, so between that good news, all in all, um, solid week, bro. You're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some. All in all, I look back at the week, I feel like I won more than I lost. So mm. car's good now, tie's good. Can't complain. Temporary, Brown, temporary. glad you're here, man. Talk to us, man. How you feeling? No, I'm, I'm good, fellas. I'm good, man. I think for me, I'm in this place where um, of a lot of transparency and clarity um, mentally, um, spiritually, um, emotionally. Um, all those things that is, is real important to me. And to be honest with you, it's just uh, one of those things when I started the year. I started it a little bit different than any year I've ever started in my life. I actually started it with the Daniel Fast. And I don't know if too many people know about the Daniel Fast, but if you are a practice of Christianity, a lot of churches start the Daniel Fast at the very beginning of the year. Um, and what it is, is that there's a specific diet that you apply to your life. Um, and that diet includes like no sugars, really, uh, no simple carbs, 
Um, on top of that, it's mostly just a lot of fruits and vegetable oriented food. Um, and then I started that with like, you know, a healthy cleanse, right? So I even went down to like get a few colonics and this is the first time I've ever done such a thing. So ideally for me, so wait, are you, I'm sorry, are you saying like a colon cleanse or actually like, you actually got all a those colonic? things? I got a colonic. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's so up, I, man. So, that's so naturally, up. like you wouldn't think from like, you know, at least me not knowing right, 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 right. how it's going to affect me mentally or how it's going to affect me emotionally. Right. Or even, you know, even if there's a spiritual blockage, sometimes I would think that also helped a little bit there. Because, again, the Daniel fast is related to my spiritual tie into Christianity. So ideally for me, being in this position where I'm really clear about how my state of my mind is. Right. And very aware about my interactions with other people. I'm just feeling like, you know, nowadays I'm in a very, very like freeing space mm -hmm. because I can be vulnerable with everybody. My interactions are very pure. My, my, my intentions are very genuine, right? So therefore, like the clarity of just having a Daniel fast, the clarity of actually practicing certain things when it comes to my Christian beliefs is just things that's at least for me, giving me much more of a fulfilling start to this year as most people may have not had such a fulfilling end to 2020 right and so for me to be in this place where i feel like i'm healthy in a healthy space spiritually mentally and and like you know all even physically from physically too, from, what from, saying, that, yeah. from, from that just being focused on my diet um i just I, I feel good man i really i really just really really just feel good about being in this space and um i'm just thankful to be here i'm blessed um, you know, to be here and I'm just like, you know, happy to get this started for sure and talk about everything we have lined up for today. That's what's up, bro. You, you, you motivated me a little bit too, because, um, one of, one of, one of my friends, uh, Laurent, um, frat brother of ours, he was his ADP, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he does a lot of, um, health and wellness and he, he trains people as well. He put me on to a colon cleanse, a drink. You take it for like a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I couldn't, I, I went to this health food place in Queens. They didn't have it, but I ordered it online. So I should get it sometime this week. So I ordered it. But um, man, the fact that you just told me, I, I don't know. I've been a little nervous about getting an actual colonic. So right, I was like, let right. me do a colon cleanse first. Right. And then, it is, you know. It, I, will, but, I, will, I will tell you, it is uncomfortable. Right. Um, uh, the reason being is us as men sometimes have heard about yeah, colonics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh because we may not necessarily know exactly what takes place, um, it's a little bit nerve wracking when it comes down to it. Um, it's definitely nerve wracking when you think about, you know, what's the actual procedure to kind of go through a colonic? Because if you guys haven't done it before, um, and I don't want to scare anybody that's thinking about it, it's like, you know, like when you're a child and your mom gives you an enema, right? Where I'm they, not familiar. So it's sort of like they... Healthcare, so from a healthcare provider, yes. when you're constipated, they pretty much induce water into your rectum, oh, okay. which goes up into your colon, right? Colon's the last part that before you, right. the last part your stool passes through before you have a bowel movement. Mm -hmm. So you induce water and what it does is that it makes the, pretty much makes the like colon open up, kind expand of. Uh, and then it creates movement, bowel movement, so it flushes you. it out. But it's uh, it's the most effect. It's one of the most effective ways to have a um, a bowel movement for people who are constipated. To relieve constipation. Mm -hmm. So they moms you. would give it to to children at gotcha. ages. 
wasn't always a thing. But but the good thing is, even though it does come off like a little bit daunting to think about, because it's pressurized water, right, right, and it's not like a one session thing, right? You got to go to three sessions, right? So it's just one of those things where you got to get uncomfortable to be comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I enjoyed it, bro. Like you know, obviously I didn't enjoy the process, mm-hmm. um, but I enjoyed the results, the feeling, of right? What, and how one how of those things now. is yeah. like you know you know before you even get get to that you know, stage where you're going through it, they even ask you a lot of prefacing questions about, you know, what's your type of, are you irritable? Are you, you know, constipated? Are you all these things? And when they ask you these questions, you know, you're, you're answering them truthfully, but at the end of it, you realize the results of the, where you were to where you are now. And it's just like a huge transformation. So I would definitely recommend it to anybody that's thinking about it. But obviously for us men, sometimes it may not be a conversation for no. our wellness to think about such things. But mm-hmm. I know for me, I know what it's done for me mentally and again, emotionally and physically. So it's, I'm definitely there that's what's, it. it's, it's definitely something that us black men need to try to maybe push the narrative. And maybe, Jay, we, we could even do a special episode where we talk more about certain things that might be taboo health-wise amongst black men. Because um, I read some statistics one time that actually colon cancer i think is most prominent within black men and um remember black men oh so to die okay so not necessarily that we get it more but we die more right at disproportionately high rates we also diagnose with it later stages just because we don't do we don't Um, or maybe check primary care often enough yeah and it's not just what primary care but also other symptoms going to get colonoscopies right it's a bunch of things but right so I think, and even um, you know, the passing of uh, Chadwick Boseman last year, you know, it's, we 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 might it's it's definitely time, not even might, it's definitely time for a shift in our perspective on that right. particular part of health aid. And, um, and just just before you say anything, I wanted to give you guys a credit. Like, um, if you guys are gonna do it, the place that I ended up going was called My Wellness Solutions in Harlem. So, okay, if anybody's listening and wants to try it out, that's Black, where I went to. Uh, no, but it's Latino women that that, oh, that own it. Yeah, same, uh, same. Yeah, so. You see, you saw, you kind of got kind of excited when you mentioned Latin women uh, going up behind her. Yeah, he, he's like, he's like, I do that anyway when I be the crib. It's for us, for sure. It's definitely for us, and it was good. It was way. You said my wellness. My wellness solution. That that that. All right. So first up, Mr. Gray over here. I'm messing with you, Jay. Had to had to add a little comical sense to the episode. Um, so wanted to shift into something that that took place over the uh past week. Um, this totally blindsided a lot of people, but it, it did happen before within the past 15 years in Texas. Um, there was a a, a, a a strong winter storm, which came over the, the, the southern part of the United States and strongly affected Texas. Uh, they received weather that they're not really used to. Frigid cold temperatures caused a, a freeze of their power grids. There's uh, some discussion as to how the power grids were then used to, in the in the act of trying to possibly conserve the energy for a later time, but this caused um, a, a mass power outage pretty much across the entire state. We're talking one of the largest states in the United States, um, across the state, across all the major cities in Texas for for many people. Um, keep in mind, this is not upstate New York or Massachusetts. You know, it's a state that's used to snow on the ground, cold temperatures, their, their, their grids froze over. Um, there was a lot of backlash on the way it was handled by public officials afterwards. Uh, some public officials taking trips from what was seen 
during the midst of this whole situation. Oh, we're gonna get there. Oh yeah, but air it out, bro. Air it out. Air it out. Um, fellas, chime in. You just your thoughts on what you saw. If you know anyone who was affected, the way it was handled. Well, I I can jump in on that. Um, for those that don't know, um, I actually work for a consulting company called Accenture. Um, and most of my colleagues are not necessarily, they don't all just live in California. Um, my colleague, the one that was actually trapped in this storm, um, lives in Dallas. And so his name is Oki. And it's interesting because at the very beginning of the week, he sends me a text message saying, hey, there's a power outage. I can't access my laptop, so therefore I can't connect to work. So just please let my our manager know. And obviously it was like, whoa, like, you know, I'm thinking it's just going to be a day. But then I watched the news and now I'm made aware that this is what's going on with this huge winter storm and power outage. And we didn't expect it to be like a whole week. Right. But now it's like, OK, now it's an extended period of time. And now you're starting to see a lot of what's actually taking place on social media. For example, not just as a power outage. Then it's on top of it, people's homes are being destroyed. Right. Then on top of that, there's like no water in their homes. And then on top of that, it's like, like, you know, grocery stores are not being opened. It's just like, what type of crisis is this? How serious is this? And then you kind of put yourself in an empathetic position where you're like, wow, I thought this was going to be a day. But just figure how you can put yourself in their shoes and live there for a week. And this is going on. And then on top of it, to hear the news about Ted Cruz taking a trip to Cancun, <laughs> it was just it was just an elevated like insult slapped to the face to anyone that was going through it because clearly he was in a privileged position to now capitalize on something that clearly was not a concern to him. You know, it was a concern to all of all of his constituents, but clearly not to him. So I definitely felt like you know being in that position, if I were any one of them, you know, the types of just emotions that will come out of that hard scenario to just kind of live through is just something that I don't think I would want to even wish on my worst enemy to go through that, you know, and to see how long it's going to last. I don't even know how soon a lot of people are going to get their power back or even get their homes fixed if it got poorly see, damaged. Some significant damage, right? right. So yeah, I saw a lot that. Of flooding. You know, it's crazy. You know, Ted Cruz had put out a tweet, I think it was last year. And he said, I'll oh, believe... 2016 he did. Yeah, 2016. I'll global warming when Texas, Texas freezes over. <laughs> that didn't age well. Texas freezes over and he right. dips. Uh, but I think first, all of my thoughts and prayers goes out to the people who are affected by this. Absolutely. Right? And the people who are like really affected by this. Like they can't go nowhere. They can't escape. No you water. You think about like the poor neighborhoods that they have in some of these, um, some of these like cities within Texas. My heart really goes out for them. Mm -hmm. Especially when you don't know how to deal with cold weather, right? You don't know how to deal with ice because it's, it's just a different monster. We look at, I remember, what was it, like two two years ago when Atlanta got a snow. It wasn't even a snowstorm. It was just an ice A little bit of snow. And everything shut down. Now, every time Atlanta get below freezing temperature, they just shut everything. Everything's closed. There's no ice on the floor. It's just cold outside. They're like, yo, it's too cold. It's closed. So I, my mind and my heart, it goes out to them. Uh, I hate that Texas is a red state and these people think it's just okay to let your less fortunate constituents deal with it. Like, it's okay. Like, I remember one, I don't know if he was a former Texas governor or a former Texas senator, and he said, if Texans have to suffer so that government won't come in and control our things, then so be it. Let them yep. just suffer. I saw that. That's, a, that's privilege. 
right? Like you can say that from a privileged standpoint, mm-hmm. and I, like I, I hate things like that. And then you see Ted Cruz, who you know what? I'm not surprised by him. Let me say that because Ted Cruz is who Ted Cruz is. This is a man who Donald Trump disrespected his wife. And then he began to become one of the biggest Donald Trump supporters. Mm. So I'm not surprised at it. Somebody who do that, like, you can't disrespect nobody that's in my circle. You ain't got no backbone. And we're going to be cool. Let Bro. alone my wife, mm. who's the mother of my kids that I'm still actively with. Absolutely. So I'm not surprised at Ted Cruz that he would do this. And then he just lied about, oh, I had to go to be a chaperone for my children. I had to make sure. And your wife just, was on the trip with right, you. Exactly. Bro, just like, yo, just say that I thought it was a good idea to get away. I realized it wasn't. And now I'm back. Right. All right. And it's just, it, it sucks that these are the people that are responsible or that advocate for you and make some of our decisions. But I am happy that. Next, this week is going to actually be 80 degrees in Texas. Okay. So at least some of those people who are less fortunate, they're going to be on the end of the list to actually get power to get their homes restored. It won't be freezing cold. Right. Right? Because it's, it's a report that there's been over like 450 carbon monoxide poisonings Sheesh. in Texas because of it. Because people are trying to warm their house up with their cars. Yep. Warm their house Sleeping up in their cars as well too. With propane tanks. And all of that increases carbon monoxide poisoning. So I'm happy that they won't have to do that. It's my heart also bleeds because you know insurance companies. Oh, what happened? That was an act of God. What do you mean it was an act of God? Because that's what insurance companies do. Right. A tornado, any kind of event like this, they say it was an act of God. So I I hate to see that happen. Uh, I hope that things get better. I'm happy that Biden declared a uh, state of emergency and they're gonna send some extra help. And I hope we get the ball rolling. I hope that they put some things to help Texans within this next bill that they dragging their feet, um, this next COVID relief bill, because a lot of this is COVID related. Uh, so bring them along and helping them. What, out do, what do you guys think about AOC making a trip down there? I think it's good. I think it's what our politicians should do, mm-hmm. right? Like I and actually be on the ground and actually help, right? Like you think about us as we are in black frats. We do things for Thanksgiving. We do things for Christmas. We also have like younger male uh, clubs, mentorship initiatives, right? Yeah. Different mentorships. You know the difference that it makes in those people's eyes when they see us helping. Your politician should be helping, and she's a New York politician going to Texas, no, right? But Texas is a very big Latin population, so it's good. Yeah, right. Raise three million. Amazing. I mean, Raise look at it. Million. I mean, it's like. It's even the Ted Cruz tweet that you mentioned, right? Like, I don't necessarily feel like a lot of uh, Republicans don't logically believe that climate change is not a real thing. The thing is that they can't publicly admit that they believe it because climate change is not conducive or it doesn't align with a lot of things their party supports. Big oil drilling, things of that. So they have to pretend that it's a folly because it goes against... A lot of the political uh, action, the, the PACs that support them, and, and the bank at the end of the day. And it's kind of like what you said, you know, the thing with politics is crazy. Like, it'll defy logic a lot because people will make decisions based upon power and money, not what makes sense. So, you know, you read a tweet like that. Like, do I think that Ted Cruz legit believed that climate change, or even like when Trump would say, believes that climate change doesn't exist? I think anyone who's 
watches like one documentary about what's been taking place in the environment over even let's say the past you don't even gotta go back past 100 years past 20 years can see that climate change is very real but like it's anything you'll speak in a matter of self-interest right. if admitting something will hurt you in another way you'll pretend like you don't know the truth when the truth is clear so i mean you know no politicians are at political parties perfect but i am glad what you guys mentioned that there are people of another party that's not too well represented in texas Making at least what seems to be a little bit more of adult and logical decisions and not self-interest decisions. But prayers and um, definitely blessings goes out to some of the people that's been affected. I saw some footage uh, in certain parts of Dallas, certain parts of Houston. Just, you know, the lower working class folk who really not in a position to stay in such a situation for such a long sustained period of time and for some of those whose homes have been destroyed right this is going to be a real big change for them right? right which is how on top of a pandemic right that right. has hit texas very very hard you know this actually just added a lot more double mm -hmm. trouble than they even expected it to be so even just to be in this current position there's a lot of just like you know you know I, I would not want to be in that position. I would not want to be in that position and I would want to be cared for or cared about by my politician. And I just feel like whatever we can do from our supportive end to make sure we check on our family down there, our friends down there, or even, you know, donate to, you know, AOC and, and, and her charitable donations down there. So we know it's directly going to go to Texas. We should all partake in something like that to actually help out the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that was actually a perfect segue, brother, uh, because the whole reason that you're here, um, I wanted to bring you on here, multiple things I wanted to speak about, but I, I've really admired um, a foundation, a charitable cause that you've started when you had your inaugural sneaker ball for this organization. Um, I was you know, very thankful to be invited and to, and to attend and just hear you speak. Um, you know, I've known you for some time, but just for matter of fact, even before you said it in person, you were just give telling me on the phone about, you know, the part of Ghana you're from, what that area, what that village is like, what it's like for a lot of the school age children, and just shedding some, you know, sometimes there's like stereotypical jokes um, about certain parts of Africa and like a lack of access to clothing or shoes or things of that nature. And a lot of that is really just Eurocentric stigma thrown our way to make us feel like people. But, what you're talking about is more from an economic standpoint of just not having access to buy certain uh, certain things. And this was sneakers. And you had um, an amazing event, a sneaker gala, to help donate sneakers back to young children, school-age children who live in the village that you grew up in in Ghana. Um, and, you know, you're, you're taking that organization to, to new heights. And just this whole idea of, you know, you're, you're very successful in your own right at Accenture and what you're doing career-wise, which is dope, but bigger purpose, bigger mission. You know, you was even speaking on a concept earlier of, okay, you're a blessing, but how can you be a blessing to others? And I know you're gonna shed light on that. And and, and that's really what I wanted to, um, you know, really highlight today because it's not so much about the hustling that you do for yourself at Kaplan, and, and we're gonna talk about that in more episodes and talk about real estate. We brought Jesse here before where we talked about um, investing and so did we with the brothers from Black Currency, but Part of what you got to hustle for is also your soul, not just your pocket. You know, what makes you feel good? What if, if you know, if, if you were to pass uh, to tomorrow, what what's the legacy you left? I remember Nipsey Hussle had said a line was that a lot of times people think that it's all about what they can get out of life. What, what can they get? What can they extract? But not enough thought is put into what they can put in, 
What do you, what do you leave? And it's really about, you know, when you, when, when your time is up, how much did you put in? Because eventually it, this life will leave us, you know? So it's really about what do we put into those who are going to come after us? So Brown, I appreciate you coming here today from Jersey. And this foundation I'm talking about is Madache. I hope I said that right. I, was, I, I, was, I, was, I was working on it. Yeah, yeah. Was good. Was actually I was working on it. From the beginning. Medache. Medache. Woo! See it? Medache. Brown, you say you you that's that and that's my future. Yeah, my and you, future. And you say it with so yeah, much conviction and soul. Yeah, Medache. My future. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm gonna blame the colonial powers from separating me from knowing how to naturally say that well because I should know how to naturally say <laughs> Don't that. Don't worry, well. you already but, on your way. But I'm on my way back. You're on and, your and, way. and that's and, and and that's what really matters. You know what I mean? I'm on my way back to to reclaiming that uh that knowledge. But Brown, I mean. Talk to us about Madache. Tell us about the reason for founding it, the purpose, the objectives, um, any partnerships that you've that you've you've uh, had with this organization. Um, what have you guys done so far? Let's let's let our listeners and, and the supporters of the Block to the Boardroom know what this organization is about. Okay, no problem. I'm definitely excited to be here and talk about Madache. For a lot of people that don't know, it means my future. Um, if you want to help pronounce it, I can help you right now. It's called Medache. Medache, it means my future. So my future, our future, the future is the youth, the future of the people that we care about and trying to help them along the way, giving them an opportunity to succeed. Um, and what you were talking about is at the very beginning of our conversation today, we were talking about, you know, being blessed. And I shared with you guys a scripture and the scripture said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And when you think about blessed in the Greek word, it, like the Greek word, I forget what it's called, but it means happy. So you replace the word blessed with the word happy. And it's happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be fulfilled or satisfied. Mm -hmm. So for me, when people ask me, where did, you know, Medash come from? You know, where did my reasoning, my purpose for building a nonprofit come from? To be very quite clear, I got to a position where I recognized that I was blessed. Right. And what that meant for me was I actually had a big birthday celebration in L.A. for my 29th birthday where I asked God for just love and prayers. And what I received was that in tenfold. I mean, all my friends flew out to L.A. You know, we went to Vegas. We went to the Polo Classic. It was just a beautiful experience for me to receive exactly what I wanted, which was what? Love and prayers. And so thereafter that I actually enrolled in this um um, like, you know, a, a little bit of a course, which was called designing your career 2040, because ideally at that specific time in my life, I was searching for something. And that's something that I was searching for was my passion. What did I really love about, you know, my, my career? What did I want to do in the world? How, what imprint or footprint did I want to leave behind? And going through that experience, um, brought me to find Medaja. And on top of that, what you refer to as the Empower Sneaker Gala, which was my first charitable event. And in order to even get there, I had to go through these series of questions that I had to answer for myself. So naturally, when you're asking yourself a lot of questions, where you got to start off is, what are, what are your core values? So I was able to define that through this experience that I went through with my company. Um, and my core values was community, contribution, and authenticity. So for me to be in that position where I'm now able to identify my core values, how do I apply the, nest, the skills that I currently have with my core values to be able to design what my future is going to look like when it comes to shaping my future passion. And so when it, when it came down to, it, I was just like, okay, for my 30th birthday, what am I going to do? 
you know, I already feel blessed. I don't feel like I need anything anymore. So what am I going to do about that? And a friend of mine said, hey, Brown, how about you, you know, do something that's related to charity? How about you donate? So I said, okay, if I'm going to donate, let me reach out to my sister. My sister's just currently live in Ghana. And I reached out to Florence and I said, hey, Florence, I know you're working at the schools in Ghana. What do the kids need? And she said they need the shoes. And I said, shoes? I'm thinking it's going to be books, pens, tablets. You know, tablets, something, right? And she said, they need shoes. And I'm like, why do they need shoes? Why is it like footwear the most important thing that they, or most prevalent thing that they need? And it was the understanding that, one, these kids were walking long distances to school. And then if you know anything about, you know, Ghanaian weather, there's a wet season and a dry season. So during the wet season, it's literally a lot of rain, right? So what that means is that a lot of these kids that don't have the proper footwear would walk long distances to get to school. And then on top of it, trekking through it with what? Chancletas, the thong standards, whatever yeah. you have to make that walk to school. And then on top of it, now when they get to school, you know, they don't necessarily have the confidence to participate the inclination that they want to be a part of this experience, this learning experience that's supposed to be helping to free them from their burdens. And so now they're not necessarily contributing because their confidence isn't there. You know, so knowing that shoes was literally a barrier to the education became a problem. Not necessarily just a physical barrier, but also a mental, mental barrier. barrier. You know, so when I when it came to finding Madacha and on top of that, the Empower Sneaker Gala, the whole purpose of it was to eliminate the barriers to education for the underserved children, whether physical or mental, right? So naturally, how am I going to be able to allow these kids to see something beyond themselves in their current environment, right? Because I needed to make sure that I needed to solve for that. So ideally, what ended up happening was I said, okay, fine. If a barrier to school is that you don't have shoes, I'm going to find a solution for that, which is what? Put together a sneaker gala. Now, I put together a sneaker gala in New York City, a city where people are very you know, fashion-oriented, want to dress up, looking for any and all excuses to be a part Sneaker of a, culture is a, huge. A, 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 a huge cause. That's even something that they will naturally go to, which is polo plastic. They just want a reason to be there. And now I'm able to tie a cause to a purpose. To a social event. So naturally yeah. for me, it's like, you know, for me coming from a fraternity background where we've tied causes to a lot of events that we've been able to do anyway, being a Sigma from Syracuse State as our chapter, now I can apply those same things to my actual life of actually being able to help kids that need my help. And it's immediate. I don't have to go through any red hoops to get the sneakers to them and for my impact to be felt. So now I put together a sneaker gala. We do, we do it in the middle of Times Square. Like a couple of my friends, actually, I don't know if you saw it, Trev. They lit up the Empire State Building for me. They, li they lit up the that. Empire that's, that's State Building for me with Ghanaian colors. Wow. You know, I'm over here playing on my phone and I'm able to change the, the lights on the Empire State Building. Wow. You know, and it's just so beautiful because it's like, you know, I'm able to bring like-minded folks together around a cause that's not even anything that they had anything to do with, but just purely because it made them feel good mm -hmm. to be a part of something like that. It goes back you to know, that definition you mentioned, to be happy. To be happy, yeah. to be like, Fulfilled. you know, blessed are those, the ones that are seeking that righteousness. Right. So naturally, I gave people an opportunity to also be engaged with me in, you know, being a part of the solution. And that solution was, we was able to raise $10,000. I was able to purchase 214 sneakers, brand new sneakers. I was able to help my friends, you know, get, help me bring them to Ghana. Where so we so, so let me, let me ask you yeah, about that part right there. So even if someone's trying to do something similar, right. did you have to like form any strategic partnerships with any sneaker companies to, 
you know, maybe like you you created, you provided a certain amount of donations and they matched it. Talk, talk about how you actually went about doing that part. So that part is something that I was definitely looking to do. I actually was trying to do a partnership with Nike, um, but it didn't go the way I expected it to. Um, for anybody that's looking to do a partnership with any sneaker brand, one of the things that you got to remember is when you're actually going to uh, ask Nike for a donation, you have to go to their flagship stores. So you have to go to their flagship stores that are more so, for example, in New York on Fifth Ave. And once you go there, what they do is there's a percentage that the flagship store makes throughout the year that they actually donate, right? So based off of that approach, if they're willing to donate, they'll donate based off the percentage of those proceeds and they'll give it to you. I wanted that connect. It didn't go the way I wanted it to. So I said, okay, no problem. This isn't necessarily going to stop me because what? I have like-minded friends who care about this as much as I do. And clearly my passion was there for you even, Trev, to even pull up and pay the $75, which was the general admission ticket. That's what we started at. Right. 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 And naturally, it wasn't about the money for you. No. It was about the cause for you. And when it was all said and done, you know, we were able to raise $10,000 with what, 10 people in the room. And on top of it, I was able to connect with a lot of different artists that actually donated pieces to me for my silent auction. So my silent auction in and of itself, Trev, believe it or not, made $2,000. You know, naturally with people just wanting to, you know, buy these art pieces as a form of donation. We also had like a program that was just pretty lit. I mean, Trev, you tell me if it wasn't. You came in, there was a saxophone player playing at the very beginning. You know, there was a spoken word the artwork that was there. there. You know, the, the hors d'oeuvres was lit. You the know, it was so, <laughs> man. Then it was luxurious. It was, man. it was the, like Midtown, you know, Times Square, like looking at the West Side Highway, the water, like it was just a beautiful event. And naturally, I would just say, you know, I, it didn't necessarily hit me until I actually got to Ghana, right? And now I purchased the shoes, you know, raised the $10,000, and now I'm confronted with the kids that I'm here to help. Kids that don't even know about me. They just got a word that somebody said, hey, I need you guys to be here. Even though it's during this Christmas time and you don't have school, bring your parents and you're going to get a gift. What gift is that? Why, why is a random American coming down here who doesn't know me, doesn't know my true circumstances, willing to come here and help me, right? And it's just because I, I wanted to. It felt good to me. And everybody else that did it felt the same way. But you actually do know their circumstances. No, no, no. I, I, I knew their circumstances, right. but, but to them, I right. didn't. So how, how do you change that? Is, do does I, that mean, mean maybe taking a trip down there and introducing yourself and showing them that you grew up so that they could see like, oh, wow, here's somebody who's from our village migrated to America, went to college, now he's doing, like, how, how do you help let them well, realize it's not just, well, like, well, a charitable organization, but you have a connection? Well, one, one, thing, one thing about me is I don't necessarily do it from a position of, quote-unquote, this is charity. Ghanaians right. are very prideful, right? right. Yeah. So it's not a charity, it was an investment, right? So that was the understanding for it. But then I also broke it down to a human perspective, right? How would you like to be treated when it came down to that? I can relate to them. I could put myself in their shoes, I was born in Ghana, Trev. Like, right, I was right. born there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When people say you, you lived there, walk. Like, I literally walked in their shoes before. Right, right. So for me to be able to put myself in their shoes, it wasn't a problem, but I've been removed, right? Because I've had the opportunity to move to the United States, had the opportunity to get a really good education. I had the opportunity to put good sneakers on my feet. At will. If, yeah, if I'm will. wearing the Rolls Royces of sneakers, they, they had the kick scooter of, of sneakers. Right, right. You know, so naturally for me, it wasn't necessarily about... You know, feelings like I'm removed from them more right, so, right. but it was just more so about, wow, like 
I was able to do this. Right. No, I, I meant more right. so for, for them themselves, for the for the, for the for the young children. You know what, Trev? I think it I think it goes back to when he said he created and identified his principles. Uh, community contributions and authenticity. That was your three, right? That was my core values, yeah. And with those core values, one of the things about being authentic is knowing that I admit I don't know exactly what your struggle is now. Right. Because sometimes we can come from the same place. I don't know what that struggle is because I haven't been there for so long. But I know that you have a struggle right. and I know that I have a means to come back to help you. And I think that one, bro, that's that's huge. I wish I would have known about it so I could donate. The next time you do something, let me know. I'm absolutely going to donate. Right? I, I appreciate that. I love that. a good cause. Uh, and then two, I, I think that his example is important for those of us who's quote unquote made it out the hood. Mm -hmm. And not just giving back, but understanding why you're giving back. And also understanding that it's not charity, it's an investment. Right. And it's, it's what I, a saying I always say, um, one I've said many times on this podcast, little black boys can't grow up to be what they can't see. Little kids can't grow up to be what they can't see. And him being somebody that has quote unquote made it saying, no, this isn't charity. I'm not giving you something. Right. I'm investing in you. For a reason. And I'm investing in you without you having to give me anything else in return, with the exception that I want you to invest in somebody else later on. And I think that's I think that's dope. I think that's big. I think it's beautiful, bro. Congrats on that. I mean, for for the most part, I would just tell you this. Like me being able to find this passion, me being able to put myself in the in the shoes of these kids, it allowed me to realize the impact that we can all have, right, as individuals, right? Most of us, it's not about having the availability to, or no, the ability to bless someone. It's about being available to bless someone. And for me, it's not like, as you proclaimed it, Trev, I have a great career. You know, my family's doing well. You know, a lot of the things that maybe I may have taken for granted in the past, once I got to a certain level, I realized, man, if I'm here, where are those that come after me? Right. You know, like there's an opportunity where that, that level of, you know, understanding about humanity was what was the driving force behind it. The willingness to look and pick somebody else up that was not necessarily in the position that I'm in. Especially because I'm a firm believer that you have to pay it forward. Somebody gave this same opportunity to me. So I was willing to go ahead and give this opportunity to them. And naturally, I wanted you guys to know, I actually did this uh, video shoot, which was a student spotlight. And a student spotlight is going to be a series that we're going to roll out for Medachi, so you guys should be aware of it coming out in the future. But one of the first kids that we brought onto the student spotlight, we asked him, like, hey, you know, it's been a year, you've gotten the sneakers, you know, what did you want to tell the people of Medachi, mm -hmm. right? And so little did I know that this kid's dream is to be a soccer player. Okay. So his dream is to be a soccer player, but when he used to go down to the field to play soccer, the other kids would make fun of him. Why would they make fun of him? Because he didn't have the proper shoes. So now he's going down there like, how are you going to be a soccer player, famous soccer player, you don't got the, the proper shoes? Right. He got, he got sandals on his feet. Right. So now it's like, oh man, like the kid is down, doesn't think that there's anything for him in his future because all he always wanted to do was be a soccer player. But then randomly, an American guy comes down there and blesses him with shoes. And he's like, now I go to school, I go to play soccer and these kids don't laugh at me anymore. When you hear this kid's voice say, like, 
They fulfilled my dream. And you mentioned too the confidence too. Now right. he has more confidence he, he in the walk, classroom. Walk right. there with yeah. the stride, like yeah. I'm going to be a soccer yeah. player. Yeah. And people don't necessarily have to deter his dreams right. Right. because he doesn't have the necessary tools to quote unquote succeed at being a soccer player, which is the first thing you need is a pair of sneakers. You know, so ultimately for me, being in this current position where I'm able to live in my passion, live in my purpose, being able to solve a problem for the for the like underserved children. I just feel like there's an opportunity for me to allow other people into that same world. Right. People that care about this to be able to be engaged with me so we can actually smartly like find our ways to tackle these problems and be part of the solution. So ideally, I, I really appreciate you guys giving me this platform to speak on it because if there's anybody that's interested, we're here. You know, we're here to kind of educate. We're here to also try to find a solution to some of these problems because it's not just Ghana. It could be Nigeria. It could be, you know, Jamaica. It could be even here in Brooklyn. You know, where we're recording, you know, this underserved children in a lot of different communities right. is about how do we apply ourselves to be able to build that bridge to go ahead and solve these problems. Listen, man, since I missed your, your event, I will say when I when that young man turns another size, let me know. I'll donate that pair. That pair is on me. Just let me know. Don't worry about it, man. We're about to have the sneaker gala this year for sure. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask you, Brown. I mean, you, you've, you guys have done so much amazing stuff. Let's let the, the audience, the people know what's, you know, in the pipeline for the rest of this year going into 2021. What are some of the dope stuff that, you, that you're about to roll out? So right now during COVID, I know a lot of people have been yearning to be in community with each other. Right. So the theme for this year is eliminating the barriers to human interactions through the help of digital, like, you know, abilities like applications and things like that. So one of the things that we did this year was that we actually put together a series of events. One of them was this called uh, Afrobeat Burnout. What it was, was it was an Afrobeat dance class, which was a dance workout class that people can take both virtually and socially distanced style. Okay. So we was actually able to have this guy, his name is Hurricane GH. For those that don't know him, you can follow him on IG. And he came out and he taught this dance class and there was about 60 people there. And we was like 60 people in person and then about 15 online. And we were able to raise about 2000 bucks from that event. We also had another event, which was a, a, a sip and paint event where we were able to raise another like $2,400. And I invited you to that, Trev, as well. And that event was, you know, an opportunity for like-minded folks, again, to come to an event that was associated with a cause. So, you know, even that, and then on top of it, one of the most recent events that we had was Giving Tuesday, which was, you know, naturally a day of giving for a lot of different charities globally. So we was able to raise another 2K from that. So since inception of Medache, we've been able to raise $16,000. Going forward, what we're looking to do is same things, like-minded events. So the next series of events that we have coming out is called For the Love of Quarantine. So what we're trying to actually promote for that is healthy relationships. So as Medacha, what we're doing is that we're actually having preliminary conversations in Clubhouse to help people kind of understand what is this about healthy relationships that we're trying to work towards in hopes that when we do finish out our Clubhouse series, we're gonna actually have an in-person or virtual event that people can attend and actually pay money for that's gonna be going towards the charity, but in in hopes of doing what? Finding their match, because we know that during this COVID season, not necessarily having the right partner is, you know, is affecting a lot of people mentally and physically too, right? Like naturally people are going through things about feeling a little bit alone and not necessarily supported during these times. So us as Medatra are looking to find ways to continuously solve these problems in our current society right now. That's big, because during quarantine, uh, domestic abuse has gone up, 
uh, drug abuse, drug overdose, all those have gone up. So having those things uh, is, is big. So I'm, I wish you luck. Let me know. I'll be there to support, brother. Uh, and I'm glad you came on to talk about this. You know, some of the stuff is eye-opening. Some of the things is just... A lot of times it's good when not everybody has the ability to create an avenue to help. They need other people to create so that they can donate, that so that they can play their role. So it's beautiful that you're creating these avenues for people to help. Amazing, bro. And, and you know, we've, we've spoke about this for a while, but... You know, I'm so thankful that our listener community and uh, more people will get more in touch with what you have going on. Shout out to you, everybody that's a part of Medache. And um, man, I, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over, bro. So I could, I could go to another sneaker gala. No, don't worry. You know, I, I, we, we got some clean, we got some clean picks you know, off at the last one, bro. You know, the best part about fits. that is uh, this year's sneaker gala with COVID being a real thing. We actually turned it into a sneaker gala masquerade edition. Okay. So I don't know if I showed it to you yet. No. But my girlfriend actually designed the mask for a lot of our fire, photo shoots. Fire, fire, and fire, when fire. I show it to you guys and when we release it out, you guys are gonna be like, All right, like this dude is really stepping it up a notch. You remember the outfit that I had on for oh, my yeah, 30th? That, outfit was that was all inspired by what you did, because remember, um it's the same suit, the green suit right. that, that you had that was too small for you that your sister made. Right. And then I wore it with sneakers, kinda like how you did, yeah. Right. Yeah, that was that was that was some that was some. No, nah, I mean it's it's the one thing about the sneaker gala that you guys will find is that one there will be a sense of inclusion there. You know, when you come in, you're gonna feel like you belong, right. whether it's within your style of clothes or just within the energy of the right. room. Right. Yep. And then there's also a sense of expression, right? So mm -hmm. naturally, a lot of people feel to be themselves when they walk in there, because this is the type of space that I'm actually curating. Because when people ask me, like, what are the three things you want people to remember about your event specifically when it comes to the sneaker gala, it was expression inclusion and action mm -hmm. i wanted those three things to be the things that they remember so when it comes to action the program is going to derive that the silent auction is going to derive that the reason why we're there is going to derive that so naturally for anybody that's looking at my events just know that it's with a lot of thought in mind with the understanding that one we're there for a cause but two we're also there for a quality time uh, yep. and i'm not going to beat you over the head about feeling bad or feeling guilty towards the injustices of the world or, or how other people may not necessarily be going without, but I will educate you on those opportunities that we all have to give another person an opportunity. You know, something that's going to allow us to solve these problems that we know is plagued our communities, you know, and for a lot of our youth, you know, it's just, you know, giving them the opportunity to actually succeed, right. whether it's through sneakers. And right now, the most relevant need right now, one of the barriers, major barriers to education right now for a lot of kids in Ghana is um, PPE supplies. If you guys think COVID in America is bad, hmm. go to Ghana. A lot of these kids haven't gone to school since March of last year, March of 2020. So what does that mean? These kids are not going to school. How are they learning? They're learning from watching TV. You watch a TV channel to get to school. Most of the kids that needed to take their exams to go to college, not all of them had an opportunity to right. do that. So it's like, you know, okay, what is this barrier right now for Medacha to solve for? A lot of the money that we're raising this year is going to be specifically targeted towards donating PPE supplies. Hmm. So we can actually help curb the spread of COVID-19 so a lot of parents can feel confident knowing that their child is going to go to school and not necessarily, you know, get the disease and bring it home. You know, that's another thing. So ideally, for me, as, a, as the founding member of Medacha, I just realized that there's a way for us to, you know, all be a part of this journey. And I'm looking for your listeners to come with us and grow with us as we try to solve these problems together. Amazing, bro. Amazing. Um, wow. So, so motivating, so motivating and so inspiring. We talked about being a blessing to others. I feel like 
you know, you sharing that insight. You you a blessing to to Dr. J and I and to Lauren, everyone here that's here in the studio listening to uh, you know, what you shared of of, of what you're doing. It's just, uh Nip had said this too, man, like true power is in um inspiration and in motivating others, you know, inspiring someone else to take mm -hmm. action. So that's that's great stuff. Man, I wanted to, you know, with with the theme of Black History Month, um, I wanted to have a little open discussion with you gentlemen, because it dawned on me when we was putting this together that we have um, the three main subgroups, um, we're all black men, but the three main subgroups of the black diaspora that's, that's often talked about. Um, and that would be, you know, you Brown being from Ghana, from the African mainland, migrated here, but you were born there. You're very steeped in that culture. Um, myself, a black man as well, but from the Caribbean, from the island of Jamaica. And Dr. J, who's African-American. Now, we all identify with the same race, but due to the um, transatlantic slave trade and the diaspora, we have slightly different cultures. The culture always ultimately goes back to the original root, but where we were, uh, who were, who colonized us, right? Because even in the Caribbean, we have the English-speaking Caribbean, we have the French-speaking Caribbean. There's also the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, you know, Dominican Republic, Brazil, you know, there a large amount of um, slaves are brought there. Well, enslaved people, I should say, were brought there. So, you know, we have slightly different subgroups, um, and we're all uh, trying to do progressive things within this group. As you mentioned, you know, everything that you have going on with Medache, um, everything that Dr. J does in, in his community, everything that I do within my community and, and, and the larger communities um, on a whole. And it's funny because as we were talking, we were even, and, and this is something that Dr. J and I talk about all the time, but just how our particular ethnic alignment, how it affects the way we perceive things or see things. And you had shed some light on this as well as you were mentioning um, watching Judas and the Black Messiah and possibly not really getting certain concepts or not feeling a certain way about certain concepts. Not that you didn't, but not right away because there might have been a lack of familiarity with certain things, um, which is natural due to just not um, living and experiencing something daily, you know? Wanted to, you know, pick you brothers' brains, open up the floor. And I think this is going to be a real great conversation uh, for our listeners. We're going to call this Diaspora Talk. Um, Dr. J, I'll start with you. What does it mean to be black in America for you? I should have to go last. But, um, so for for me to be black in America is it's just existence. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was saying I should probably go last because... As an African American descended from slavery in America, right? This is my history. There is, there is to a large extent, nothing else that I can plug into directly. Meaning, right. I go back home down south for a reunion. I can plug into Orangeburg, South Carolina. I can plug into College Park, Georgia. I can plug into these other places with family, but because of the way that slavery was. I can't plug into anything that happened before slavery. So for me, this is my existence as being black. Color is color of my skin, the way I talk, the way I act. There's no escaping it. Um, and I think it's, it's defined by everything. It's, it's defined by the culture. Growing up, I would probably say, not even growing up, because growing up, I didn't necessarily know I was a minority. Like I was told it, but everybody I lived around looked like me. 
I think going to Binghamton and realizing that I was a minority because I was at a predominantly white institution with a population of black students is 3%. And really realizing like, oh, damn, I'm a, this is what a minority is. And then you start being treated certain ways by white professors. And I'm like, damn, this is what being a minority is. This is what being black is. Even more than just being a minority, right? Because I think to a large extent, there's a difference between being black and being other minority groups. Like some minority groups that can assimilate to whiteness get treated a little less harsher. <coughs> Sorry. Elaborate on that. <coughs> so meaning for, let's say Asian Americans, right? Asian Americans, they get treated harsh. Uh, certain things that go on, like even during COVID, because Trump pushed this whole the China flu, right? China virus, dumbness. They've been like the attacks on Asian Americans that's going up. But growing up, there was this stigma that Asians were very smart. The the model minority, as they're called, right? Like it was this stigma, very smart. But when you look at it. Assimilating to whiteness means by skin color as well. So Asians are lighter than black folks, right? So people, the groups that have been able to assimilate closer to whiteness have been treated much better in America because the other ones that are closer to blackness get treated like the descendants from the slaves were treated. So that's what I mean, right? So you have groups that, you know, white people can look at them and go, oh, they're more like us. So they're the smart minorities, right? Or they are the ones that are right. They're the ones that behave well. So that's what I meant by it. And, you know, being in Binghamton, it was like, this is my existence. And I remember even when I went to grad school and after, like, when Dad was pledging, right? I was going through hell in school while you was online. And it's because I had made it my point to start telling professors, stop telling me my skin color, it's a risk factor for all of these different diseases. There's a deeper reason in it. Mm. And it kept being, no, one of the risk factors is being overweight and healthy, unhealthy eating habits and being black. Stop telling me that. Uh, so it was, it was just my existence for a lot of it. Like, this is just my being of who I am. It was, back then it was a gift and a curse. Right. Because all of our culture wanted to be exploited. So it was, what are you thinking so I could try to steal it? But then it was the curse because I was still black. And then, you know, after you finished getting, after I finished getting my master's and you learn how to navigate the world and pretty much turn it on its air, right? And you learn how to then manipulate the world. It's, it was one of those, oh, this is just a gift. Right. You just have to get to a certain point in life where you can unlock Appreciate the doors. Yeah. But then it, this is just a gift. And my, my main thing since realizing that has been how quickly can I reduce other black people time and realizing how much of a mm. gift this is? So that's one of my biggest plights now. Right, right. So, you know, you start off at the, the, the young age of the young boys that I coach or mentor, right? How quickly can I get you to see what's really going on in the world? Right, And right. I know I can't just show you because you won't believe it because everything that's been put in front of you has been a facade. So how quickly can I get you to realize it? for my nurses and my frat brothers and other educated black people who haven't fully grasped that. How quickly can I get you to see that? Right. The abilities that you have 
to create for others and how that becomes a blessing tenfold because it's an investment back into your community, like Brother Brown was saying, right? right? And when you invest back into that community, your community invests back to you. Because 10 years from now, you got 10 years worth of leaders that you help to grow. That's now what you lead in, you know, in all of these different spaces. But I, I'll kick it back over to y'all, then I'll join back. Appreciate you, bro. And I, you touched on something. I just wanted to um, get your take on a quote by the great James Baldwin. Um, wanted to see, what, what did this mean to you? Because this is a quote that I always admired. And you touched on, we talked about kind of what you can link back to with your family. So James Bolden had a quote where he said, uh, to be African-American is to be African without memory and American without any privilege. I know what that quote means to me, but it's even hearing what you were saying. What does that quote mean to you when you hear that? To be African without memory um, and to be American without any privilege. So to me, it means, <clears throat> let's say I go overseas. Right? right, and you go overseas. America's a big bag bully in the world. Right, we either the big bag bully or we everybody's big brother. Right, and you go there, so you're treated a certain way because you're American, and it's like, oh, you're supposed to have money, or you're the enemy. You are. So let's say I go somewhere where they don't like Americans because I'm the big bag bully. Okay, I get associated with it because I'm American. Like I said. It's all I have in terms of being able to plug in. Right. My history starts at the beginning of slavery in terms of who I actually have memory of what you know. and connection mm -hmm. with, right? So I get all of that bad of the outside world perception. Right. In America, being American also is to be capitalistic. So to be at the bottom of capitalism means you can't eat which you killed, somebody else eats it. So you starve the most, you have the most diseases. You live like literally, I have literally watched friends and family members die from HIV AIDS just because they didn't have enough money to access the drugs that are now becoming generic mm. that are saving people lives, mm. right? Like that's what it means. The privilege of being American though should be, oh, I can go anywhere, I can buy anything, I'm viewed as this, I'm treated, even the people that don't like you supposed to treat you well because you're a big bad bully. But they see me and they're like, oh, they, he American, but he ain't American American. Right, right. And we all know, what, when you black, we know what that's saying. When we say somebody is the five bloods with the black GIs when they went to Vietnam and like they were American soldiers, but right. Vietnam looked like, but you know you're not like President, you know, Nixon. Right. Like, like, if yeah, I yeah. shoot and kill one of them, America not going to come after me. Right, 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 right. Like, so that's what that saying means. Like, all the privileges that's supposed to come with being American, especially outside of America, I don't get it. Right. I don't, I don't receive that. Let me, let me feed, let me feed yeah. off of that, um, JJ. Um, that, that quote is very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it, it is at that quote that I start to understand the black plight, right? So understand mm -hmm. the black plight as a Ghanaian American. You know, how do I feel about being black in America? Right. Um, and one of the things that I recognized is when I walk outside today, the next person doesn't look at me like I'm not black. I'm black. I'm not, I'm not Ghanaian. I'm not African. I am black. So understanding what it feels like to walk in the shoes of a black man, I go through the same things with the racism. I go through the same things with the 
different people that just wanted to like put me in a certain position because of my co the color of my skin. Even my name is a deterrent to a lot of folks. So naturally walking in that black plight, it's like there's a lot of things that I sometimes feel a little, a little bit of empathy for the black man. Why? Because when I was born in Ghana, I wasn't raised to have this institutionalized mindset of my history began with slavery. Right, right. If I was to birth a child in America, my biggest fear is for somebody to consider them what? A nigga. At birth. Mm-hmm. Right? So then at the end of it all, so what are you subjugating my child to? The lowest form of humanity? The part that you don't necessarily even have to care for or even have to think about? If you were to take his life, it didn't even matter? Right? Right. Like, this is the concept of the black plight that I had to kind of understand as an immigrant moving here. Right? And obviously, for my parents, some of them didn't understand it. They didn't understand what this black plight was. Oh, you know, they'll tell you, the white man will tell you, you know, the black Americans are just lazy. They don't want to do anything. They just want to live off of government funding. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. my parents don't understand the history of this country, that institutionalized history that they didn't necessarily get a chance to go to school and actually gradually kind of think through that right, in their right, own minds and right. internalize and then realize there's something inherently wrong with this history. Hence why you can understand more and empathize more with the black plight when you start to understand the history of it all. So when James Baldwin is putting that quote out there without the memory, you, you don't you don't really get like, okay, where's my connective tissue? Right. Who bonds all of us together? Right. Right? And naturally our struggle really bonds us together. Mm -hmm. Our collectivism really bonds us together. Our communication bonds us together. Our history bonds us together. But for some reason, the black plate means that what? We're already separated from birth. Right. You're not tied to me because you were born in America. You're not tied to me because you have family in the Caribbean islands. Because I'm in America, I'm from Ghana. I'm not tied to any one of you. I'm better than you because you know I know where I'm from. So that's what's supposed to make me feel better than you. That crabs in the barrel mentality. Yep. Yep. That's what we're supposed to really be behaving like. We're supposed to be treating each other bad. We're supposed to be killing each other. We're not supposed to be supporting each other. We're not supposed to be even thinking about each other in the ways that allow us to be what human towards each other. Mm -hmm. Because the black fight suggests that we can't even be friendly towards each other. So for me to be able to grow up in America and kind of consume that, as an African, I can't pretend that I'm not black. I am black. I am the new African mindset. If my parents didn't get it, I get it. Right. I'm black. So for me to be able to go out here and still walk in your shoes, JJ, I can't necessarily be 100% into it because I didn't have family that you... Physically know that been through Jim Crow, been through slavery, been through like dogs chasing them. Like I haven't lived that life. I can only sympathize with that life. So naturally me being in America now, I really do appreciate the privilege of quote unquote, as you described it, outside of America being American because I have an American passport. I also enjoy the privilege of saying, hey, if I want to go home to Ghana, I can do that. You know, if I want to leave this place and free myself of this subjugation, if I want to free myself of this, like, you know, institutionalized racism, right? I can leave. But you, JJ, you can't even do that. And that's and that's and that's huge, Brown. I mean, I feel like that's a I'll catch the ball there because um, and even listen to a lot of what JJ was saying. And um, I may have like a little bit different of experience with some of my family um, and some of my relatives because. I, I grew up in America, right? I grew up in America. I spent a lot of time across the border in Canada, in Toronto. I have family there as well. But, like, I, I, I know a lot of what 
the African-American plight is like. You know, from just having African-American friends growing up in New York City, I've I seen it firsthand. Although I may have a different cultural background in a home and go home to Jamaica a lot, like, I can relate to it. As you mentioned, your parents couldn't see it. Like, my parents didn't get it at first. They got it as they were here for some time. I was born into it, so I kind of understood it a lot, a lot more. But I think one of the key things that you mentioned, that, that line, and Jay even said it about... Um, being American without privilege is something that kind of always gets me where sometimes people be like, well, like, well, patriotism or like going, going hard, quote unquote, for the flag or something like that. And, and not necessarily understanding was like, well, well, then what else do I really go hard for? You know, in terms of from the African-American mindset, like I don't know of a like I'm, I'm very much instrumental and integral to the founding of this nation. You know, we talked about it on the last episode, you know, African-Americans are fought in every major war. Revolutionary War, 1812, Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War One, World War II, go through it. Like, they've been a part of every major war, you know? So it's like, you know, you, you might not be bestowed the privileges, but it's like, I don't really know what else I should rep because I very am much American, you know? Um, and, you know, when I read that quote, I'm listening to what Jay's saying, and that's where I kind of agree with you, um, you know, I'm patriotic to, 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 to a degree, but one thing I'll always say with like having such a strong Jamaican background is I've always felt like this like exit. Like, well, well, you know, well, that's some America. Like, if I ain't really feeling what America's going on, I mean, I'm Jamaican for real and, and I'm a Jamaican citizen as well. So it's like, you know, yeah, that's, you know, but when I'm even hearing what JJ saying, it's like, he doesn't have that exit. Same way you said like, I could just go back to Ghana or I'm a Ghanaian citizen also, you know, like. That's so it's like it's almost like we're we, we borrow the American identity, but we kind of have a luxury that that Dr. J doesn't have where it's like we can pick and choose when we want to be American mm. and enjoy enjoy the the uh, spoils or rewards that come with being American. But when something happens in the media or something racial resurfaces and we not really feeling America energy like that, nah, even American, I ain't Yankee, bro. I'm Jamaican, bro. If you I'm Ghanaian, like I'm not even really American like that. But African-Americans have to deal with that in good and bad. They have to love America when America treats them well and also still deal with being American when America's not favorable to them at all, you know, because they're very much an identity of the United States of America. Um, so so back so uh, back to just the, the, the whole identity, um, I will say for, for, for me, and, and just being a natural history buff, just researching, um, I don't have the ties to um, Jim Crow, as you mentioned, and, and, and things of that nature. And I'll even say, I even remember uh, my dad's older brother, my uncle Winston, when him and my dad migrated to the United States around the same time, my uncle Winston went right back to Jamaica because um, they were both um, mechanics by trade and one of the shops that he was working at in brooklyn was owned by an italian guy that was kind of like his first because you know jamaica's a pigmentocracy that's a phrase in terms of like skin color right different shades naturally because the colonial effects of great britain left still last there the ones who are more mixed or lighter skin naturally have uh a better economic and socio status that's right that's similar exactly so it goes back to what jay was saying right so you know somebody who's a mulatto or someone who's mixed more than likely will be a business owner as opposed to a full black jamaican you know and, and this goes back to when when great britain ended slavery in the 1800s in jamaica 
the ones that was working um, in the fields, you know, the sugarcane plantation, things of that nature, were the pure African bred slaves. The ones who, uh, you know, maybe were a mix, were massive side child or something like that. They might have been the overseer. The the ones who were immigrants from Britain or Europe directly, they probably owned the land or owned the business. And that structure stayed with Jamaica uh, all the way through independence. But at the end of the day, you don't, since, since slavery's ended in Jamaica and the Caribbean, you don't have direct racism. You know, there's colorism, but you don't have direct racism because at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. At the end of the day, every other subgroup except for black Jamaicans are a minority. Black Jamaicans are still at least, I think, 89, 90% of the island. So, yeah. you know, they're not, and, and it's sad that they're not 80, 90% of the economic wealth, which is crazy, right? Like it's the other ethnic groups that actually control Digicel, the, the, that's our tele, that's like our Verizon, our telecommunications and other big business down there. But at the end of the day, like racism, like to that level couldn't even really work there, which is also part of the reason why Britain like ended up ending slavery early because the revolts were just getting out of control. They couldn't quell them because it was a numbers game. There was just too many enslaved versus landowners, but you know, when he came here and he got that first real introduction to racism, that feeling, not like he had that luxury of saying, well, I'm off this, you know, like, you know, there's more economic opportunity here, but I'm going to go back home and grind a little hard and figure it out because this right here, I'm not dealing with that, you know, and that's a luxury mindset because if you're here, your family's been here for hundreds of years. Where are you exiting to? You know, I, you know they. Uh, I was listening to a, a podcast earlier about um, the whole back to Liberia movement, and it was successful for some, but also it, it wasn't successful because at that point the African American is so disconnected from that region and things of that nature. It, it wasn't like you know black people just went back to Africa and just jumped right back into the mix and like, hey, all is well. And, you know, now we have been, yeah, we're so far away from America and everything's great now. Like, there was a level of disconnect. You know, there was a level of disconnect and, and, and Liberia struggled for, for, for quite some time trying, trying to get off the ground. So, you know, I understand that. I understand that plight, that racism um, more so than uh, my parents probably did at my age. They understood it more the longer they were here and, 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 and realized um, I, so I would say I, that's that's definitely something that I I could see a little bit easier than they do. Um, but I will. I'm very I'm very aware of my um, Jamaican Caribbean luxury, and, and and what that is is that's having a whole different nation, a whole different citizenship to identify with when America upsets me. You know, and I, I I'm conscious. I realize that like when America upsets me, like you know, um, I'm quick to say I'm not American, you know? So it's, 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 it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting concept. Now I will say, I don't think that I have any, um, feeling that being, um, Jamaican American and, and being a black Jamaican, um, gives me any privilege. It doesn't absolve you. Yeah. It, it does. It does. It doesn't, I don't feel like I have any, uh, privilege. Cause as you mentioned, I mean, that's something that my parents' generation that's something that they were told, once again, infiltrating our minds. That's something that they were told um, when they when you know when, when they um when when they first migrated here. My mom always tells me, um, you know, when she first came here, she was a secretary at an office in the city. And um, how even like the boss was telling her, like, um, oh, but you're you're not black like them. You guys are so orderly and this, this, that. And what my mom didn't realize was at the time was that, oh well, yeah, that's because I haven't developed a hatred for you yet. 
So naturally, yeah, I probably will be a little more accepting and nicer to you because I don't have sustained generational trauma towards you. Or that's a little bit further removed for us, you know? Um, so to that point, it's funny. Uh, Bugs, myself, and who was it? Somebody else, we were just talking about this. A lot of times when we are interacting with people, sometimes they'll go, where are you from? Right? Like, let's say you're doing something good for them. Right. So for me, a lot of times with my patients, I'll get, yo, where you from? I'm like, here. No, no, no. But like, where you from? I'm from here. Where your parents from? From from here. And they're like surprised. And then they're like, not Caribbean? I'm like, I'm slave black. Right, right. Right? Like, not meaning that I'm a slave, but so you can understand I'm descended from slaves. Right. Stop trying to associate me with another group because you think... Other groups of blacks are, are better yep. than the blacks from America. Yep. We're all the same. And what people don't understand is that when people, when when black groups migrate to America, mm-hmm. so outside of this country, you can migrate and roll to a point where you do it a little bit at a time. Right? A couple a couple come over, you get a strong foot, all right, send for the rest of the family. You get a strong foot, all right, we're good. Send for some more of the family. You can migrate like that, right? For us, it was, oh, y'all are free, right? Okay, cool, y'all go figure it out. Mind you, the majority of us that was getting ready to go figure it out, the South then decided, yeah, y'all are free, but we're going to create we gonna control that, mandatory work that y'all have to do for us. And we get to tax you up to 100% of your, your wage. Then for your children, no, your children aren't free to be children and play. We're going to put them in apprenticeships. And now they have to work for us for a year. Right. But nobody should complain because we're actually going to pay them some sort of a wage. But they're mandatory. They're mandated to work for us. And then if you decide, yo, I actually don't want to work for you. I'd rather go somewhere else. Guess what? You go to jail. Yep. And then that little piece of the 13th Amendment that said we was free Unless, also said if yep. you were in jail, you can then be treated to slavery. So guess what? You right back in slavery. And then that's when you see the rise of the whole prison industrial complex. It, so, one institution replaced the other. Imagine trying, but imagine, right? It's all of us here as a family. Right. And I got to try to bring the entire family with us. Right. We can't roll them out. Like our version of the way... Other blacks migrated to America was, yo, you go up north, right? So the people in Florida, Georgia, Virginia, they came up to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Mm. The people in the Alabamas and Mississippis went went to the Chicago's and St. Louis, right? So that was our version of it. But you still got all of your family in the same country as you paying similar bills. Like I got boys that was, and you know my man, I was deported back in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, I remember when we went out there. I got boys that I could be like, he like, yo, Jay, send me some money for me and my son, right? We can put together and be like, yo, here go $500 for you. That can make him last a little bit, put him on his feet. Imagine me saying, yo, Trev, uh, you need money to help you out with rent? I got $500 for you. You will look at me like, yo, bro, my rent the same amount as yours. Right. If 500 ain't going to help you, what is it going to do with me? Right? Like, you don't get some of that. Because it's not a whole different nation with a whole different economic scale. And, and, and you know, one, one, one of the things I just wanted to touch on, too, and, and to tie back to you, Brown, with, with the quote also, 
what I was talking about, this whole, just this kind of the, the luxury that, I, that, I, that I'm aware of, right? Um, the first part of the quote was saying, African without memory. And um, a, a lot of the things you mentioned, Jay, took place in the Caribbean as well. It was just like, it was a different scale. So once slavery was over, um, you know, the, the, the Great Britain, who had most of um, the Caribbean, um, made sure that they still kept certain things in structure. You know, to, to make sure that, okay, we're still going to rule our colonies a certain way. But at the end of the day, as I mentioned to you, it was a numbers game. It wasn't going to be like how it was in the United States. But one of the key things, and Brown, this is, you know, when me and you first linked up, part of the reasons why we got cool, because um, we were just, I'm very aware of the ties to West African roots. So, you know, we were just talking about Patois from a, from a, um, how would I say this from a linguistic perspective and how many of the phrases, how many of the phrases, the words from a Nancy stories and Nancy folk stories, there's even some of the words we say, the, 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 the words have roots that are Akan, that are Twi, different things. There's, there's so many roots that's there. Um, it's not as direct, but I think one of the luxuries and I'm aware of this is because of the nature of how slavery was in the Caribbean, it's a little bit more of a memory of what it was to be African, distant, you know, distant, but it's 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 still it's still there in the in the cuisine, it's still there in a, in, a, in a lot of the in a lot of the speech and different different things, you know. I, I don't I don't even know if a lot of Jamaicans or just you know Caribbeans or uh, West Indians overall even know how many words they say are actually base rooted in in, in West African in, in words, but even that like the memories there. You know, a, a, a little bit to a little bit to a degree, which is even so much so, which is why, you know, you even said to me, Abdul said to me, he's like, you know, when you go to Ghana, you're gonna feel right at home. You know, this which is why dancehall and Afro beats sound so similar, because naturally the sound is 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 coming from the same place. It's why when I went to Nigeria last year, you know, certain cuisine things were different, but for the most part, like. I felt very, it felt very reminiscent to being in the Caribbean. It was familiar. It's, it's very familiar. It's very familiar to me in a scale. Climate-wise, the environment, you know, it, it kind of reminded me of just being kind of like in what we call country out in Jamaica. And then, you know, being in Kingston was kind of more like being like by Victoria Island part of Lagos, more more city part. But it, it, there was a little level of familiarity, you know, and um, and I, I really think that's just an interesting aspect. And and also something that Jay said that touched me also that, that I'm, I'm big on is when people try to do that, that, that whole where you from and oh that's I like to dispel that because like I have good friends like and like I said because cause I know so many um dope African American people and like their cult they like their culture's somewhat my culture you know like, I I grew up here. Um I never really I, I try to dispel that incorrect thinking when somebody be like, oh I'm like, no, like what what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like that's that's not accurate. Like I could have easily one of my friends here who's not Jamaican and you probably feel the same exact way about them, you know? So I try to even take the onus upon myself to try to dispel those myths when people say that. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, even me as an African or Ghanaian man, I've gotten that. You know, another Ghanaian would ask me, oh, so, you know, not knowing that I'm Ghanaian, where are you from? And I'm like, you know, I grew up in Boston, lived in New York, you know, all those things. But then they would think of me as not African enough because my first instinctual answer should have been I'm Ghanaian, mm. right? So naturally, I think the issue for you know the black plight again with us as a black diaspora, African diaspora, we're oftentimes tearing each other down with the whole crabs in the barrel mentality. Right. 
and forgetting the connective tissue that actually bonds us together. Right. When you're talking about the Nazi story, none of the Maroons, the Jamaican tides, the West African culture, even the Akan culture, that Akan language, Akan for most people that don't know, is a predominant language in Ghana. So for Trev to even know that, that's a big kudos to you to be tied in and plugged into your history to recognize the connective tissue that ties us together. Right. Right. And even for Jay too, right? One of the things that I feel like may be a little bit of a blockage is because again, that institutionalized mindset said you didn't belong anywhere. You were somebody's property at that point. Right? right? I don't belong somewhere. I belong to this land and I'm a tied and associated to this land and therefore I'm the property of this land and therefore I don't know where, to, where I belong anymore. That's what you're saying, Jay. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's ridiculous for him to think of it that way, but that's just the institutionalized mindset. That's what has provided him with that thought process. Right. So for me, like being in this position of quote unquote, I consider myself the new African mindset, which is what? I'm not going to sit here and hinder Jay from wanting to know more about Africa, wanting to visit Ghana. I'm going to be here to support Jay and build that bridge to be that connective tissue. Why? Because the only way I succeed is if Jay succeeds. If Jay recognizes that, hey, there's an opportunity for me, not necessarily here in America and more so of my home in Ghana, I have to be that bridge to allow Jay to recognize, yo, Jay, yes, that opportunity is there for you. And I'm going to show you how to get it. Because why? If you wanted to bring your family to live in Ghana, that's an opportunity that, that's afforded to you. Why? Because you have a connected tissue, tissue. to it. Yeah. Your lineage is is drawn from there. The color of your skin, the features of your of your hair, like your your, your stature. You are African. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you you're not. You know, mm -hmm. I can't tell you you're not. So therefore, what is my job? My job as an African is to make sure that Jay feels the most com comfortable when it comes to relating to me and connecting with me as an African. Because why? I understand his plight. He's looking for answers. He has a series of questions. How am I going to be better able to serve him in doing so? Right. So naturally for me, I'm in a different position. Why? Because now I can go to Ghana and show it on my Instagram. And now my friend's like, word, this is what Ghana looks like? Yeah. You know, yeah. I started showing it on Snapchat like four or five years ago. That's when you started yeah. sliding into my DMs like, yeah, I'm trying to come to Ghana. You remember when, you know I, when, I, when I went to Nigeria, that's funny you said you sliding You were talking DMs. about it. You were talking <laughs> about it. Never send a next man a slide in the DMs, bro. Like, come on, man. It's okay, man. You slid in my DMs. But it's funny because I was real big on that when I was in Nigeria. You saw the right. caption I was always using, right? When I would go out to like certain places, especially when I was in Lagos. Particularly when I was in Lagos, I'd always say... This is the Africa they don't want you to see. Fair. Because kind of similar, like Jay, you said, like how little black boys can't grow up to be that. Like a lot of blacks abroad in the diaspora, whether in the Caribbean or, you know, United States for years was fed this brainwashed idea of what Africa looks like or what's there, you know? And I even wanted some of my friends from on my age. People that are not native. Right. From yes. people who aren't native. Right. And I wanted people to see like, nah, this is what it looked like, bro. Like, you know, like this is how people live there. People's, and even on my story, people's like, yo, bro, you in Nigeria right now? And I was like, absolutely. And I was just going to show you just the, how prevalent that brainwashing was there that, you know, that stereotype of just people running around with huts is still prevalent in a lot of people's minds. But how, you how, disconnect. how did you feel when you touched the soil? I felt great, bro. Did you I, feel I, like you belong there? So... The exact experience, I was explaining this um, to my mom, and, you know, I haven't been all over the world, but I've, I've been to quite a few different countries. I've been, the furthest I've been away from home is New Zealand, Australia, and I was saying it was the first far away place I went to that didn't feel far at all. 
in the sense of unlike being in Europe or somewhere else where it's like you're walking and people are looking like, is that an athlete? Is that a, you know, I've, I've been before. I remember being in um, Italy. Uh, me and my boy Julian was there that I went to high school with. We had a high school trip to Italy. I remember we was there. And um, these, French, these French girls were in Italy and they walked up to us. And they asked us to start start rapping 50 Cent. That's when 50 Cent was kind of real big at that point. But they just saw us and was like, can you rap for me? Like, you know, and it's like this little stuff, like interactions like that. And, you know, it was the first time I was in a foreign land, but it didn't feel foreign. It felt home. Like people weren't looking like, you know, I've never been to mainland China before, but I've heard some pretty interesting stories. I used about, to go to school there. So yeah, I, know, yeah. I, I heard some pretty interesting stories about black people going to China where like people legit like, like they've never they've seen it on Touch TV. Yeah, like whoa, that's really you know. So it's the first time, um, you know, I was somewhere far in in terms of just geography, in terms of mileage and proximity. But the minute I got there, it was like people look like my relatives, like people just looking at me like normal. And naturally, they could tell I'm a tour, I'm a traveler. So you know, you're gonna get a little bit of the asking for money or whatever. That happens when I go to Jamaica too, just because they can just tell by like. Your lifestyle, even when you try to dress it down a little bit, they could tell like, nah, you, you look like you're using some good products. Like you, you know, your nails look real clean, your hands don't, you, you live in some good life. So come up off of something. But that whole idea of looking at me like, who are you? Didn't really exist. If right. anything was more like, who's this black person from abroad visiting? You know, but not like, who's this black person? Like black as a thing. You know what I mean? And, and and that was that was so dope, bro. Like I said, it's it's the furthest I've been away, and I didn't feel far at all. It, it felt and that's, where I was supposed and to. And that's be. the beauty of it all, right? It's like you having this experience and being able to share with other people, right? Not necessarily feeling like you're in a foreign place, and not necessarily having to question whether or not if your identity is going to be something that you always have to like secretly tuck away so you're not putting yourself out there. But the beauty of it too is that you're also able to see. Them and yourself, right? right you right. know there's a way for you to relate to them. Yep. Right? Because now they're showing you their culture. They're bringing you around their family. They're sh eating with you. They're mm -hmm. breaking bread with you. You can now see, oh, word? Like, the way that you guys cook that is the same way we cook it. And it's the yeah. same taste that I'm going to get because y'all use the same seasoning. And y'all use the same herbs. Yep. It's just like, where in this where you ever bound to be different from the person that's there? And you know what else is dope about the diaspora? I don't think a lot of people realize it's a two-way street. So as much as like African-Americans and Caribbean-Americans, how we admire the culture of the roots and we go, you know, those of us that have the privilege of, of, of going back to, to Africa, Western Africa, South Africa, East Africa, whatever, and we're learning and we're taking it in. One thing I realized when I was there is I don't think we realize the level of admiration a lot of Africans have for you for what we did with the culture abroad for you you know like just the I remember on one of the places you staying like the, the young guys I was there was just asking so many questions about dance hall or about hip hop and this this that and like they really love it because it's because like you've pushed the culture forward right so they're looking it was like yo we we see us in you guys but just in a different form like you know he's got one guy was like don't think like when we don't watch hip hop like we don't smile like Yo, look what they doing, you know, like so many years, so many centuries disconnected from here. But you could, you know, you could still see the connection. You could still see the root and the way they move and the way they, the way they dancing. You know, don't, don't watch a, a video of some of these young Brooklyn drill rappers, you know, doing, doing the dances. Don't think that there's not something innate in them that's not moving them the way they moving. You know, this like drilling, yeah, 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 like yeah. that comes like just the whole way they dancing. That go back to something. Whether you know, same thing in the dance hall. Like 
that root come back. So that was a real interesting perspective too, because um, I think it might be a misconception for a lot of us in the diaspora, like I said, whether it's in America or in the Caribbean, that like Africans may look at us as lost, you know? And, and maybe that might be a, a, a view for some, but I, you know, I just wanted to stress the point that like, nah, there's actually a level of like admiration also for, you know, the how we kept the culture alive, but elsewhere, you know? Right. No, I think I, like, I understand that. Like for me, one of my biggest goals is to, I want to visit Accra, I want to visit Lagos, and I want to visit South Africa. Like South Africa to visit, not to go and hang out in the safari, right? right. Like, I want to actually just go visit, experience the culture and bring people with me. I've also realized that there's other people, like I've had friends that are West Indian, friends that are African that are kind of like, you know, you go back home to do family reunions, I meaning like back home down south, I'm like, yeah. They're like, yo, that's dope, that's amazing. Like, can we go with you, can we? And like, I've taken like girlfriends or like other friends that have had gotten a chance to experience that, which is amazing. And then I think another way that there's an appreciation of our culture is fraternities and sororities, right? Like that's one of the biggest shows of black excellence or the black, what we did with our culture, bringing it, bringing it forward, right? Like, because I think we can all agree, uh, some, you know, some people may not, especially if they're not black, but just even the, the concept of fraternities, right? Like if you, if you think about it, about them coming from Masons and you think about a lot of Masonic, uh, knowledge and history coming from Africa itself, right? Like it's still a way to pay it forward, you know, and, and see what we've done through fraternities, what we've done through some of our other organizations. I think it's, you know, I think it's dope. I think it's something to be shared back back home, like you said. And, and the beauty of it all is that when it's all said and done, one of the things that I was speaking to you guys earlier about was the year of return and how Africa as a continent is starting to recognize that the only way for us to be competitive in this world is to open the doors right. to our black Americans, our black connected tissue Africans, right? Yeah. And with Ghana having the year of return, obviously from an economic perspective, it was, it's great advantageous move for them. Why? Because that's American dollars walking through the doors. Black Americans are the most like well-traveled people in this world when it comes to like naturally helping other economies in general. So naturally for us to be in this position where, you know, it's not smart for us to not think about, hey, hold on, maybe we should open up the doors to them. Let them come in. If they want to come and reclaim the land, let them come and reclaim the land. If they want to come and learn about their culture, we'll teach them about their culture. If they want to come and actually work here and help us build this up, let's do that. Why? Because we can't depend on nobody else. We can only depend on what? Ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? And so now we've opened up the doors. Now Ghana's having a year of return. This year they were supposed to be having it beyond the return. Nigeria's looking to have the year of return as well. It's just like a connected tissue thing that's allowing us all to now realize we're not different. This is an opportunity for us to kind of re-embrace each other and start loving on each other and give each other the exposure and the questions that we had. We had. Let's provide the answers to that too, right? So naturally for me being in this position, again, I'm only here to serve as a bridge for most of you guys. Understanding that what? No matter what it is that kind of separated us, it's not going to do it for too long, right? right? And there's an opportunity for us to figure out, okay, how do we get over the hump or at least get other people to kind of get over the fear about what is unknown to them, right? Me spreading the message about Madachi, at the end of the day, you guys can tie yourselves to it because it's not unfamiliar to you. You know the struggle. You know the, the, the opportunities that you weren't 
provided. You know currently living life without. So you know how to actually associate yourself with that kind of, you know, underserved mindset. So naturally, what is it? I have to create those opportunities for you guys to feel comfortable knowing that, yo, there's a place for you there. There's a place for you to play a role there. There's a place for you to be a part of the mission. There's a place for you guys to be a part of just the journey of even figuring out some of the questions that you had. There's an answer for it. And naturally, one of the things that I had to come to to, to, gripe, uh, to un a full understanding of, which was, you know, when I got to Ghana and I went to some of the slave castles, one of the things that they mentioned was, you know what, the tour guy said, I didn't necessarily just blame white America, uh, white white people for slavery. I blamed Africans for slavery. And if you understand what what it took to man a slave castle, it was only eighty white men. 80 white men manned the slave castle and was able to make off with millions of, of Africans and enslaved them for years. But naturally, when we talked about it, we said it. Like, when you know the history of slavery, when it was, when the white men appeared, we thought, oh, okay, it's just a bartering system. For guns, you're going to take some of our prisoners of war? Like, right. that's that's okay. Okay, no problem. We didn't know you were going to abuse them to this level. <laughs> we didn't know you were going to destroy them to this level. Like, it didn't make logical sense for us for you to tear people down to this type of level mm -hmm. but naturally me going to Ghana and recognizing hey we could have destroyed the slave castle and took our people back I started to recognize that I, I realized where my people were at fault now I can start to understand why you guys feel this type of way about feeling like why should I go to Africa you guys sold me into slavery right it's just hurtful for you guys to be in that position and now I can be like oh that's how you felt now let's try to figure out ways to find uh, 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 I guess mending the issues, mending the differences, and giving us all the, the opportunity to kind of connect back together. And you know, um, one thing that my, my mom and my aunt were discussing last time they were together at the house, and I, I was there, and, it, and it's so true. Um, my mom's older sister, my aunt, she's uh, she's like full Rasta, so she's very big on African spirituality and the connection back to Africa. Um, but one of the key things she was saying, kind of like what you touched on. She talked about other ethnic groups and their ability to go places and get a certain level of respect. Um, and Jay, you kind of touched on it earlier too. She was like, she's like, you notice how as China as a country became more of an economic force, despite how people may have felt, whatever, and it, the, the racism towards Asians and Chinese people in particular still exists. But that there, there was a little bit more. You, you had to deal with them a certain way because you knew they became a certain power economically, right? Um, even with the whole trade war that took place throughout all of Trump's presidency, um, as India as a as a country, and India India is known as a subcontinent because it's such a huge landmass with, with such a large population. As India started to you know become major players in the tech world and and produce and produce such a large tech uh, skilled workforce and things of that nature, the level of respect they got when they went certain places, migrated places, um, started to expand as well. And she was uh, kind of drawn into this analogy of like. Your household, your family. When you go places and you, and, and and your household is is revered, you're you're seen as like a representative of that. How they deal with how they deal with you. And basically, what she was saying is like black people, despite whichever ethnicity of black that you are, our respect level that we get when we go places or when we're abroad will increase as Africa as a continent, the different countries within Africa, as it economically improves. Right, as Africa becomes a, a larger economic power it's going to force a level of respect for all black people wherever they are black people in south america black people in the caribbean black people in america because our root as you mentioned right like we might have all these different cultures that we developed over time at the end of the day what you said 
you connective look at tissue. The connective tissue. I see you. You look like me. Your hair is like mine. Your your your, your phenotype. Your, your DNA is like mine. You know, before we saw this, we were talking about the twenty three and Me results and the percentages that we had of, of different regions and things of that nature. So at the end of the day, no matter you know what culture I may have developed, you know, with my ancestors being in Jamaica, you know, since the fifteen hundreds onwards, whatever culture you know, Dr. J's family's developed being in America from fifteen hundred onwards. At the end of the day. Our roots are black, and as Africa continues to improve economically, that's ultimately what people are going to see when they see us, and 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 that will improve how people uh, deal with us. So you know, I I think that's dope. Also, that um Africa as a na as a continent, the different African nations. You said Ghana is doing. I, I know Nigeria has it cooking too. Um, are realizing that you know a, a lot of our assets, a lot a lot of our sons, a lot of our daughters may not be home. But we need to tap into them and bring them back home to strengthen what we have right here, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I, I just like that whole idea, too. I, I know it's been real popular lately of, you know, a lot more of us of the diaspora looking to retire in Ghana. You know, you saw PJ Kev was even pushing that initiative, uh, showing different communities of where you can get decent real estate. Um, our chapter brother, Kofi, um, he's invested in. He's been talking about it for a while. Like, yo, there's, there's a lot of development taking place, things of that nature. Um, because, you know, a lot of things in, the, in, the, in this world come down to capitalism and dollars and cents. And I don't really know if there's a way to dispel racism or, or really just make it, you know, go, go, go into the ground. But I do have a strong feeling that as African nations start to economically become bigger world powers... I think it's going to force a level of respect for black people wherever we are. Because no matter, no matter what country we're from, no matter what we identify with... Well, black people, you know, African-American, African-Jamaican, you know what I mean? That, that African's always going to be a part of it. So as Africa gets economically stronger, I think we're going to get viewed stronger. We touched on it, brothers, in closing of this um, amazing debate that we had. Um, for our particular different ethnic subgroups that, that were a part of Brown, you talked about a little bit what you're doing, you know, educating, opening the door. What are the things that we're trying to do ourselves as the individual men that we are to help augment and push our particular ethnic subgroup in the right direction, which ultimately affects our race? Well, at least for me, you guys have touched on it, my formation of Madachin, right? Which is a purpose that I was aligned with my passion, right? Something that allowed me to go ahead and create opportunities for children that are currently living without, right? Currently going through the struggles of just, you know, not necessarily having the necessary tools to excel amongst their academic journeys and trying to find the resource and the, and the actual opportunities for them to actually succeed in whatever they choose to, to kind of create for themselves in their future life. So ideally for me, Madachi is one way where I'm able to give back to my, my subgroup, you know, the people that I actually care for. And at the end of the day, those same people are us, right? When I refer to Madachi, I refer to it as the meaning of Madachi means my future. It's our future. I don't want to just keep it to myself. It's ours. Right. So for me, the youth is where I'm putting a lot of my, my my energy and power towards to also helping them kind of come up and kind of realize that there's an opportunity for them in this world. And I'm also paving the way through you guys. I'm bringing I'm kind of closing, closing down that conversation, which is now we can talk about Jada saying, yeah, you know what? I already have like a youth football group in America. I also want to connect with the youth football group in Ghana. 
Right now, JJ also has his little brother who just, Kofi wants to be as, as cool as JJ because why? JJ got a nice BMW outside, so that's why he looks up to JJ because now JJ is now what? A positive influence. And JJ has a real opportunity to JJ say, oh, you know what? I got a Ghanaian brother. I got a family out there. That's my way of actually connecting with them too. So now I am claimed by the land. You know, so naturally for me, Medash is my way of actually solving for a lot of these things and kind of creating and paving the way, not just for the students that I care for in Africa, but also for my people here in America that want to have, quote unquote, those ties, those mob ties with us as Africans and want to also help us solve for these problems. And knowing that these problems is our problem, it's our human problem, but it's just us as a diaspora problem that we need to start looking forward to fixing. Dope, bro. Uh, <clears throat> for me, it's a lot of what I'm, I'm already doing. I'm, I'm fortunate that I chose a career path that I'm already helping and giving back to people just at work and I can make a fortune off of it. Whereas a lot of other people, they have a career path that they can make a fortune, but they're not necessarily getting the chance to help their actual people. So they find another way to give back. Um, but then also with some of the other stuff that I do community service wise, like with New York City Black Nursing Association, being president of that, being a football coach, uh, which is great because that's a direct, like football to some extent saved my life. It was one of the things that saved my life, right? And being able to directly get back to those boys that's in the middle of everything that's going on in Brooklyn, that helps, that plays a part in it. And a big thing for me is, is building sustainable change, right? Building organizations that can create the sustainable change. So even when I decide that I'm finally leaving, like Brooklyn, for example, there's organizations that they're going to deal with after-school programs for these kids in Brownsville and Crown Heights and Canarsie and Bedford-Stuyvesant, right? There's social programs that can help them, right? Like there are job opportunities, but career opportunities, not just jobs, like not just giving them low-paying jobs that they're going to be stuck in for the rest of their lives, but right. giving them a career job where they can create wealth for them and their family having these career conversations. So building some of those things, but also to make a connection to back home. Like the neighborhoods I'm from, we lose a lot of our talent because they leave the areas because of how hard it was growing up, right? Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why Atlanta itself is so appealing to me because one half of my family comes from that area. Right. Like when we went out for cash, uh, bachelor party. I remember Atlanta. you went to College Park. And you yeah. went to eat, right? Like those train tracks that was behind the places where we eat are the train tracks where my grandfather was held down by, by some white man that wanted his liquor business, right? So being able to build connections back home to do things like that, but build connections where if I decide to go live in Miami, outside of Atlanta, I'm connected back to New York, but then also the people who are African-Americans in New York feel connected back down to the South, right. right? Being able to say, have these kind of conversations. So the a lot of New York City black population now is, I feel like African-Americans is probably the minority of the black group now in New York City to mm. some extent, mm. at least in Brooklyn, right? And it, there's a lot of West Indians, it is in Africans that's coming in. For, for, for y'all to feel like, all right, New York is home to me as well. And I'm connected, I can help give out. But then also, I can do things where, all right, this young black man may be African-American or he may be Afro-Caribbean. You've never been to Ghana, Nigeria to, right? 
get me, but now I have programs that can send you back home so you feel connected. Mm -hmm. So you no. feel this is where I'm actually from, right? Like I'm, I'm just as flesh in my flesh, blood in my blood. So those are some of the things I'm trying to do. Dope, bro. And, and you know, I didn't want to brush over something that you mentioned, even that story. I remember you sharing it about what happened with your grandfather down in Georgia. And it's even something that um, when I was helping even show my own family the, the historical trauma or even maybe things that you were sharing your family who didn't really necessarily get the plight. When, when you think of like what Jay was saying, what happened with his grandfather, when you think about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, look at all these generations of African-Americans trying to economically improve themselves. And because of jealousy or because of a, a, a want to economically stifle them, things went violent. It led to death, right? Jay's story that he's mentioning, his grandfather had a liquor business. And white men in the, uh, in the area that he lived in wanted his liquor business. And it's like, well, if you're not going to give it, then we're going to take it. It led to his death, you know? And it's, that's, that's just such a, a long-standing um, trauma that, 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 that a lot of African-Americans have to deal with. So... Um, action steps. So I would say myself, as I, and I, I've said this throughout the episode, um, you know, growing up in the United States, in New York City, in New York, or growing up in America, a majority of the um, community service endeavors and the things I'm a part of directly affect um, right here, directly affect the United States, directly affect the New York City community. Uh, the kids that I mentor through Big Brothers Big Sister. They're, they're, they're Brooklynites. They, they're from a variety of places. So it's really about helping the youth who, who, who look like me, despite what their ethnic affiliation, right? It's, it's, a, it's about us here in New York City as young black men in, in, in New York City. Um, I could say the same for, you know, recently, just, just last week, um, a brother of mine from Queens alumni, who's a principal at a, um, at a high school in Queens, wanted me to jump on a call with some of his high school students who were having some difficulty doing remote learning. You know, remote learning is not easy. And, and I, I said this on the call too. I was like, you know, I could understand a frustration because something I listened to in the interview was saying how, particularly for uh, young black men, a lot of us are very interactive learners. We're visual learners, right? We, we receive information very well in that kind of sense. And I, I put that two and two together. I was like, man, like remote learning definitely got to be you know, stifling us in particular because we just do better talk. Because there's, there's certain times I just be like, yo, bro, I'm going to come pull up on you and we'll, and we'll go through it. It could be like a financial thing. It could be whatever. I just feel like I know it's going to resonate more than if I just type this long. And that doesn't mean that we can't read or nothing like that. Or we have reading comprehensions. It's just it's just what we receive better in, in, in our culture. Um and, you know, it was a pleasure to be a part of that call and to uh, do that. So, man, anything Dr. J has, um, this podcast, because part of this podcast was starting, was helping to educate and shed light. And the majority of things that we'll speak on do relate to the black plight right here in America. So naturally being here, that, that's always going to be first and foremost. Um, now back to, 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 to what Jay also mentioned and, and Brown, what you were touching on, you know, Caribbean roots, um, being being Jamaican, a, a large issue of what we have in Jamaica is is similar to what Jay said of leaving the South. We have that in Jamaica. You guys have that in Africa as well. Is a brain drain, and the issue with the brain drain is that your best and your brightest and your most skilled and your most ambitious are going to leave because where they are, 
doesn't have enough to foster their skills, right? So if you're a really smart, you know, student going to school in Kingston and, you know, you want to go on and do uh, engineering, more than likely, you're probably going to try to get a scholarship to go to school or go to school abroad in the United States. And you're probably going to end up working for Lockheed or one of the big engineering firms here. The goal is hopefully you return back to Jamaica later on, but you might just migrate here. You know, my parents migrated here and stayed here, you know, things of that nature. So um, one of the issues when, you know, in the 60s, when, when immigration really opened up, and that's when you saw a lot of Caribbean black immigrants migrate to the United States, is that a lot of Caribbean nations lost a significant part of their educated population or that population that was trying to, who would have, if they stayed there, been a large part of the educated working class, they took their skill sets here, whether that was nurses, mechanics, doctors, tradespeople, things of that nature. And it's funny because the inspiration I got for this also um, really hit me when I went to Nigeria. There was a, um, a frat brother of, of JJ and I who, uh, he was made out um Bowie State, that's in Maryland, right? Mm -hmm. He's Nigerian, born in Nigeria. I want to say maybe he came, he migrated here for like high school maybe. Like around junior year, he said, and then he went to, 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 to Bowie State. And um, he's in the entertainment business, nightclub. And he had opened up a small nightclub bar in um, the Maryland area near D.C. That's where he had he lived. And it, it, it was doing okay. It was doing well. And, you know, he would often go back because his family was still in Lagos. He'd often go back there. And this is really before, he's a little older than, than us. This is before Lagos really kind of had that. And it's still early. But before even Lagos had the, the kind of major um, building that's, that's infrastructure that's taking place right now. And um, it dawned on him. He said, you know, there's so many clubs in D.C. You know, and, and, and trust me, black-owned business, you know, we promote it right now during Black History Month. Black-owned business is, 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 a, is a dope thing. But he was like, even though I'm providing black-owned business, a black-owned nightclub here in the D.C. area... I'm not really, he said, you know, he was going home and, and some of his friends would go home. They felt like, you know, they kind of got used to a certain type of nightlife experience. And they felt like that didn't really exist in Lagos. Like they wanted, you know, they'd go there for the holidays, for Christmas. And like, it's cool, but it's, you know, you kind of get used to bottle service and certain type couches and a certain look at nightclub. Right. And, and, and right. And one of the things that he wanted to, uh, to, to bring to Lagos was a modern type um dc new york city la type club to the nightlife there um and that's one of the clubs that we went to and it was super dope in there man super cool but one of the things that he was saying to us he was like oh a lot of so the groom my boy was getting married um i was on his groom and he's jamaican he's like, oh, a lot of you guys are jamaican right he's like but you guys you know you guys play you guys grew, grew up in america he's like so what is your plan for jamaica like your parents migrated from jamaica and, and went to america better economic opportunity better education that nature You've obtained those things. You guys have careers. You're working, as JJ mentioned. Yet you have careers that you know I don't necessarily say a fortune, but it allows you to do well for yourself, right? And you can hustle and do other things. What are you gonna then do for Jamaica? You know, um, and that tied into um, a discussion I had with um, JJ's line brother Carl, where we were talking about um, gaining Jamaican citizenship, um, which we both recently did to invest in Jamaica, real estate side, Jamaica Stock Exchange, just different business ventures. Because one of the things about Jamaica that still bothers me and, and, and my friends, we, we, we have a chat. Um, those of us that are um, either first gen or, or migrated here from Jamaica that we talk about, um, 
Jamaican affairs, what's going on um, economic-wise, is that that pigmentocracy that I mentioned earlier is still very real. Black Jamaicans are 90% of Jamaica. We own nothing business-wise in Jamaica. That also comes from a lot of dependent on foreign investment. Right now, the Chinese is, you know, buying up everything because they're investing in, you know, we're taking these deals because we're kind of compromised, but they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we'll build that new highway. But by the way, we're taking this, this, that on your ports, you know, yeah. um, and it, it's, it's taking place. And, you know, a lot of the big business in Jamaica um, are not owned by a majority of what Jamaicans look like. It's just, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's just the reality. And I, um, and you know, my a couple friends of mine, I want, you know, those of us that were awarded the opportunity of getting education elsewhere, and those of us that can, I would like to see more Black Jamaicans owning big business in Jamaica. Jamaica right now is too controlled and run and dependent upon foreign investment. Way too run and controlled by foreign investment. All the big resorts, like they're owned by white Jamaicans or, you know, people who migrated to Jamaica from elsewhere, you know, all of the, the big business, like they're not run and owned by black Jamaicans who have ties to the island, you know, since we, you know, were brought there um, by, by the British. So that's one goal. There's an organization um, that, I, that I'm a part of that, that, that really pushes that um, called the Global Jamaica Diaspora Youth Council. I'm part of the North, the Northeast chapter. And, and that's really what it does for um, young educated professionals who are Jamaican who are abroad in the northeast of New York just having different meetings of sharing different ways we can tie in and um, invest in Jamaica because one thing um, and it's, I think this really hit me the last time I went there in 2019 um, this whole idea of like taking back the island and when I say that is like you know the culture is definitely much there you know when you think of Jamaica you think of reggae but it's like it's like we're so prominent, but we're really not. We're so mar marginalized. Like I'll I, I do you an example. If you ever go to downtown Kingston, that's like the business district where like um, the different financial firms are there, Scotiabank, KPMG, these different businesses, they just sell. You're not going to see a lot of black Jamaicans, you know, in comparison to who you will see working in the hotels and driving taxi and things of that nature. Like, you know, and it just bothers me that you don't see a lot of um us in the major profitable sectors of the island it's other people coming in having a hand in that you know and that's why i'm saying it's like even though slavery's left that pigmentocracy is still there so that's all, also another goal of mine as well is to take the education learned abroad bring that back and help get some more black business in jamaica because even think believe it or not a black nation um like jamaica you know, it might be a black nation, but economically, the dollars aren't controlled by black hands. You know, and I want to try to change that. I want to I want to jump on that really quickly, um, Trev. I, I do agree with you. It's the same thing that's happening in Ghana. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the businesses have a lot of foreign investment. Right. Um, a couple of years back, um, the president of Ghana, who actually just got his second term in 2020 uh, during the election, um, he was seen in France and he gave a speech. I saw and that. You saw, saw that, that right? yeah, yeah. Where he said that Africa, or even more so specifically Ghana, was no longer going to receive foreign aid. It's time for us to help ourselves. Right. Right. Because that, that foreign was, aid comes at a price. It does. Because they naturally, if you're signing the deal, there's like a give and take yep. kind of relationship. Yep. 
Because why? There's a lot of resources and mm -hmm. natural nutrients in Africa that a lot of these foreign powers want to exploit. They, yep. Right? So naturally, even outside of Europe, right, who've had the biggest exploitation of Africa, now the mm -hmm. Chinese... Now the Chinese, yeah. The yeah. Chinese are doing the same. Yep. Why? Because yep. in, the, in China, production is no longer sustainable anymore. Right? So a lot of their production, where do they sh want to shift it to? They want to shift it to where? Africa. So now they've actually given a lot of these African countries a lot of these 0% interest loans where they say, oh, you know what? I want to build a bridge. I want to mm -hmm. build a highway. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these countries are now what? Getting money from China. And all China assets, hey, when we go to the UN, we just need you to vote in our way. Right, right. Right? So or now or give, us, give us a 50-year access to a particular port. Or, a or particular, even yeah. like a mine mm -hmm. of some yeah, sort, yeah, right? Yeah. So now it's like, you know, the trade-off for China is a little bit different. Why? Because they know that a lot of these African countries are going to default on their loans. Right. But a lot of these African countries also know that what? They need the Chinese resources. They need it. Yep. So if, if, if when they, in the case of Nigeria, for example, China's saying, hey, Nigeria, we'll give you the tools to go ahead and go on the ground and dig up all that oil out of that ground so you can do what? Sell it to us. Right? So now, what? Nigeria is what? The richest country in Africa, right? So right. naturally thinking about that, China has a huge influence in that. Mm -hmm. So where do us as the children of the diaspora find a way to actually be part of the solution instead of continuously Key. propelling the problem? Right. So, And it's so funny that you mentioned that because years ago, I actually spoke to Abdul about this and it's funny. Abdul is the founder of Africella, for those that don't know him. Um, I spoke to him and I said, you know, I wanted to create a chain letter. And what that chain letter would be was one sentence where each and every one of us would write down how are we going to what? Give back to Ghana, right? And it's funny that all years later, Abdul went ahead and started Afrochella, and I'm over here starting Medachi to find ways to what? Propel our country to right. go back and give back to our motherland right. in hopes of doing what? Creating a future not just for ourselves, but for our youth. When I'm thinking about it, I'm not creating a future just for myself. I'm thinking about my niece my nephew, all those other ones that actually are currently not seeing the, the power that we want them to aspire to be, right? right so right. naturally, like, I, I do get it, man. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that you're part of these experiences going back to, like, you know, Jamaica and actually finding ways to actually own land, right? Actually start businesses, actually be part of that kind of generational shift that's going to actually help your people get out of this colonialism mindset mm -hmm. and even for you jay like being in the in the position that you're in to also what help the people that are currently quote unquote descendants of slaves to kind of figure out how do we not necessarily feel so disconnected with how our approach in this whole game you know what i'm saying so naturally i'm really really just proud of you guys to be in this position to actually hear your mindset about how you guys want to be a part of the contribution and how you guys see yourselves as part of the solution to help solve our problems. So I just want to say big kudos to you guys for definitely doing that, for real. And I'll say, uh, just to wrap this up before you give the hood scripture of the week, it's crazy that we spent this time talking about what it means to be black in America, how you identify. We also talked about things that happen in Ghana with it being a lot of people that's coming in from other countries and taking from it. Things that's happened in Jamaica was the same thing. That happens in America too in our black neighborhoods, right? Like you, yo, Brownsville, I never walked into a black owned store. Store, yep. Right? But all of our money went into these stores. Right. Crown Heights was similar. Bedford Stuyvesant was probably our stronghold where the most black, black owned yep. business it was because Bedford Stuyvesant was a reflection of Harlem to some extent. Right. But to a lot of it, it's happening to a lot of us. So it's kind of like, if we could figure it out, maybe even if it's just in one group, we could start replicating it 
like crazy, which is why we should all be all connected. over the world, owning where we live, man. You know, we yeah. talk in three different places. You know, whether it's Ghana, Jamaica, or, or New York City. You know, the places that we go and spend money, the business that we support, we don't own, but we're the primary uh, demographic there. But Brown, appreciate you coming through, man. Great conversation. Yeah, Learned so much to our listeners, man. This is you know. Very special conversation we had. Happy Black History Month to you all. Um, well, the hoods. Shout, shout out to our production guy, DJ Shaq, who's on vacation right now, enjoying some sun. Who's he at? We miss you. Uh, Aruba. Aruba. Shaq, bring back a um, bottle of Henny White for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> add, add, that, add that to my collection once I end this cleanse. I'm, you know what I mean? Take a, take a sip off of that. My fault. Go ahead. That's what's up. But um, yeah, bro. Um, so I think a very fitting. Um, Hood scripture for today comes from an album that I really enjoyed. It was called Distant Relatives. Goes back to the same theme of everything. That's probably the reason why they named it. It was Nas and Damian Marley. They did a full album together. Um, and it kind of talks about everything we talked about today being, you know, despite the distance, geography, but being being relatives, the culture time. And it just hit to me too, because even when Nas starts his first verse on the intro song, he says Queens to Kingston, you know, which is like that hits home for me. So this song is called Patience, um, Nas and Damian Marley. This is actually Damian Marley's verse. And he says, um, Some of the smartest dummies can't read the language of Egyptian mummies and a fly go on moon and can't find food for the starving tummies. Pay no mind to the youths because it's not like the future depends on it. But save the animals in the zoo because the, the chimpanzees then make big money. This is how the media pillages on TV the picture is. Savages and villages, and the scientists still can't explain the pyramids. Evangelists making a living on the videos of ribs of the little kids, stereotyping the images of the images, and this is what the images. From the block to the boardroom, y'all. Episode 14, featuring our good brother Brown, Thank the you. Medace Foundation. Of course, and if Love. you guys want to follow us too, it's Medace, M-I-D-A-A-K-Y-E, Medace on Instagram. You can find us on our website, Medasha.org as well. But I appreciate you guys for letting me on your platform, man. This is beautiful. Y'all doing some great things. Thank and you, And I'm sir. here to support y'all, for real. Thank you. Thank you for joining in. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. J. Another episode. Trev Stars here. Peace.